0: Right Rug Flooring.
2: Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it.
3: Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal?
2: Indeed we do. Many wonderful, interesting stories to cover. Of course, we're going to talk about CNN+. Uh, We have Sarah Fisher on. And not to give it away, but we do have a little bit of a surprise for you. (laughs) Something that we've purchased on behalf of the entire Breaking Points community, so stay tuned for that. Um, We also have election results in France that are actually really interesting to unpack. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, Macron wins re-election, so it's sort of status quo, um, and by a much more sizable margin than what had initially been predicted by the polls, However Le Pen did better than uh, the far right has ever done before so we'll dig into all of that also uh looking like Elon Musk is in fact going to take over Twitter
3: amazing yeah yeah I mean well so this is you know reports as of this morning but we'll break it all down yeah
2: we'll break it all yeah. down for you we also have now a movement from the CDC and the DOJ on masse. they are <laughs> going to appeal that ruling Sager was right I was wrong yeah. um, but they did it of course in the worst possible way so we'll give you all <laughs> those details. We also have, uh, starting this morning, workers on Staten Island at another Amazon facility are going to be voting on a union election. Bernie Sanders and AOC were um, at that location yesterday for a big rally, so we have those details for you as well. And very excited to announce yet another Breaking Points partner, Jordan Sheridan and Status Coup. They're going to be, pro- be providing us with exclusive— yes. On-the-ground footage, um, he was there, and and by the way, Jordan was there from the beginning with regards to the Amazon union election. One of the only reporters and news outlets that actually took the chance seriously that they could actually prevail there. He was there on the ground at the rally yesterday and uh, sent us some exclusive footage that we're going to take a look at in the show. So very excited about that.
0: Yeah,
3: we've been relying on Jordan for years. Uh, one of the things that we've heard from you and that we want to make sure that we're spending your hard-earned money correctly on is having an on-the-ground presence at some of the places that are completely undercovered and that you care about. So Jordan will be doing this uh, for us, you know, basically on a continual basis, not just on Amazon, but on whatever story uh, strikes yeah. everybody's fancy across the country. So, there we go. Uh, all the administrative stuff out of the way. We got actually more, even more for you tomorrow. We can't overwhelm everybody. Yeah,
2: we, know, we have to parse it out. But I I do want to yeah. say about Jordan. Yes. Um I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the whole ecosystem that mm-hmm. we're building out here and all the partners and relationships that we have and I hope you you guys seem to have really enjoyed the content. I know Maximilian Alvarez put his first piece up over this weekend that people seem to really love. uh, Max being such a thoughtful person. Jordan adds another whole dimension. Yes. Because... For the first time now, we'll have capability to have actual on-the-ground reporting, exclusive footage. So that's something we've been looking for, and we're really excited to add into the mix to make this a a more complete and uh, holistic experience Mm -hmm. for you all.
3: The extended universe is expanding. Soon we'll have our own shoot-offs. Okay, let's start with Ukraine. So Ukraine, I know it seems like it never ends, but there's some bigger news that came out this morning. Let's put this up there on the screen, which is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin Secretary of State Anthony. Blinken both visited Kiev this morning and they came out with this very significant statement. So, the Secretary of Defense, in particular, making some big news where he says specifically that he wants to see, and the United States policy is that they want to see the Russian military weakened. Here's a direct quote We want to see Russia weakened to the degree it cannot do the kinds of things it has done in Ukraine. It has already lost a lot of military capability and a lot of troops, and we want to see them not have the capability to very very quickly reproduce that capability. So that is military speak for, we wanna to continue to see the Russians suffer as much as they possibly can in Ukraine. Now, look, obviously, I agree with the sentiment. However, whenever it comes to official statement of US policy, it cuts against what we have been speaking about, Crystal, which is that the United States is not currently offering any sort of hope or even really want of a peace process. Yeah. Obviously, we have to support Ukraine. If Ukraine doesn't want peace, then like that's what it is. But in terms of what we should want, We should want an end to the conflict. And the U.S. is now pretty much explicitly declaring this as a proxy through which they want to see as official statement of U.S. policy by the Biden administration to, quote unquote, weaken the Russian military. What does that mean? Well, it means, as we have seen what accompanied their visit, hundreds of millions of more dollars that are being sent to the Ukrainians in terms of military aid.
2: That's right. It means that. It also means uh, making Russia a permanent pariah state, yes. you know, keeping these incredibly onerous sanctions on that, of course, are uh, wildly indiscriminate, not just targeting Putin and his Kremlin leadership and his oligarchic buddies, but the entire population. And so what the official policy of the United States government, which has been clear for a little while, but, you know, this makes it even more official, is basically we are going to Make Russia a pariah. We're going to pl- try to bleed them dry. And what Biden had said originally, that Putin cannot remain in power, and what aides had been leaking and saying privately, that basically the only end game is to push him out of power, mm-hmm. that is now becoming very close to official U.S. government policy. And the impact of our actions—look, it's not all about us, but, you know, we're kind of a big player in all of this and have significant influence of the, over the direction of this conflict— we have never been further away from any sort of negotiated settlement and to these hostilities. Yeah, And that means for civilians in Ukraine, it means continued decimation, destruction, and death. And that's what's so sad about this whole situation.
3: 100%. And you look at it in the context of the war, it looks like Putin is also responding very much in kind. Let's put this up there on the screen. Michael Kaufman, the military analyst who we really respect. He put up that map that those who are watching can see in terms of where the front line and the battle is. But the real end result that you can say from Michael, is that he says that this is very likely the decisive period of the war beyond what happened in the first three weeks, and that the Russian military here is basically exhausting what remains of its offensive potential. I want to emphasize this they're exhausting their emphasis, offensive potential in the context of how they're selling the war to the russian population absent a full scale mobilization absent bringing in you know troops from other parts of the country in a full blown war footing akin to basically what the ukrainians are they're calling it like a special action at home not war although right. apparently sometimes the russian anchors slip up and they're like it's a war in and the you're heat like no of the
2: debate they call <laughs> yes. it a war yeah yeah
3: in the heat, in, in the heat of battle they everybody acknowledges it's a war but within what they have, what Kaufman and others are pointing to, is that there is very likely the last of the offensive capability, which, look, I mean, we should not underestimate. Yes, they've made a joke of themselves on the world stage, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to put up a fierce fight. And a core, a increasing Western intelligence assessments— You take that of what you will, you know, uh, in terms of what they assess, in terms of what Putin is thinking. Let's put this up there on the screen. They say, and this is from the Financial Times, which first broke the news, so this is from British intelligence, Vladimir Putin abandons hopes of Ukraine deal and shifts to a land grab strategy. This would make sense given the complete basic breakdown of talks over the last couple of weeks. The Turkey talks basically went nowhere. Escalation on the ground has continued. You saw the strategic withdrawal from the city of Kiev, and now you basically see a full Scale war for the eastern part of the country and of control. That Putin is now looking at this as a pure land grab in order to try and grab as much land as he possibly can, which is going to ensure an intense amount of death and, unfortunately, an intense amount of fighting on the parts of the Russians. Because if this is the last of their offensive capability, you can be sure that they are going to be grabbing as much as they possibly can before we even try to reach a negotiated settlement. And in terms of the parts of the Ukrainians, they've put up a fierce and, a, you know, a fierce, fierce resistance. But we did see, you know, one of the major cities there in Ukraine already fall. And who knows how much longer they can hold out in that part of the country, which is already at in in a civil war for the last eight years.
2: Yeah, Kaufman really, he's very clear. He doesn't want to hazard a guess as to what happens in eastern Ukraine and which side is ultimately going to get the upper hand. And by the way, to your point about, you know, will there be a broader— Military mobilization from Russia, where they actually are telling their population it's a war and preparing for that. There's a very ominous sign this morning. That, you know, I'm not going to hazard a guess as to what exactly is going on there, but there are reports of explosions at a gas facility mm. inside the Russian borders. Wow. So, you know, they could spin that as this was a Ukrainian attack. Perhaps it actually was a Ukrainian attack and say this is a direct attack on our soil. Now it's time we have to fully mm. mobilize and fully go to war. Right. Again— don't know that that's the direction it's going in. I'm just saying those are the reports that are out there this morning, and it's a very ominous um, development. With regards to Putin and this report that you know he was kind of interested in a deal, was going back and forth, and now has sort of decided that, no, we're just going to go for this land grab strategy. I mean, part of what he has always wanted as a key priority here is not just the eastern region, but also this land bridge um, to Crimea, so that seems to be the direction that they are ultimately moving in. And the fact that the deal is effectively off the table now, I mean, that's just an extremely sad state of affairs. And I think it's an indictment of U.S. policy and U.S. actions with regard to Ukraine. They said there was hope for a deal. This is one of the you know, sources who were speaking to the Financial Times. Putin was going back and forth. He needs to find a way to come out of this as a winner. Mm-hmm. And then you contrast that to Ron Klein saying, no, we have no interest in giving Putin any sort of an off face-saving off-ramp. And the administration's increasingly clear posture that their official policy is basically, you know, Cold War with Russia to the end. And it, is a, a, it, it presages a new and very uh, sad and dangerous, frankly, uh, world order that we're moving into.
3: Yeah. And, you know, whenever you have a situation where one side needs to safe face, who knows what that looks like? Like you said, maybe there's some attack that they've staged. Maybe it's even a Ukrainian attack. The longer the hostilities go on, the longer that this type of uh, situation and the worst case scenario can unfold. Who knows how Putin views the U.S. policy saying we want to see Russia weaken. I can guarantee you they're going to be playing that all over their TV all day long. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what they want. They want to humiliate us. They want to destroy us, which is definitely going to consolidate their population. In terms of U.S. policy, we shipped hundreds of millions more dollars in military aid over just the last week. You know, several different appropriations of weapons that are heading over there. So, look, this is entering a, a new phase, unfortunately, one we basically predicted from the beginning, which is we're very likely to see a massive stalemate. You know, World War I, people thought the same thing. They're like, well, we've lost enough people now, so now we got to come out of this thing on top. We have to go and grab This land, you know, Alsace-Lorraine, was it really worth 200, you know, 2 million uh, people who died over that soil? Pretty much everybody agrees not, but the same traps of war, the same leaders and the same hubris, we are sadly in the same situation as we found out then and in almost every war since. Now, it's all a game of attrition, and we'll see how it works out, but it's sad.
2: Let's update you on the election results out of France, because I find this really fascinating. And um, based on your response, you all are pretty intrigued by it as well. So this was the second and final round of the French presidential runoffs, and it pitted uh, Emmanuel Macron, who, of course, is the incumbent, against Marine Le Pen who is a far-right president. She and her father have been running for president mm-hmm. for quite some time now. So uh, there was a lot of nervousness among establishment types because the polls were really quite tight for there for a while. And there was a big question of who uh, Melenchon, who was the third-place sort of lefty candidate, kind of like France's uh, Bernie Sanders to you know make a very casual comparison here— who would his voters go ahead and support? Or would they show up to vote at all? Because there were protests in the street among students in particular saying, basically, we don't want either of these candidates. We hate both of these people. A sentiment that I think us here in America can very much understand with regards to (laughs) the type of choices we have been offered in our presidential politics as well. So we have official results. Let's go ahead and put this first element up on the screen from the Wall Street Journal. Emmanuel Macron has, in fact, won a second term in the presidential election. Um, You know, they go on to say he's now under Pressure to unite millions of French who cast ballots for his rivals in the election's first round of voting. Because it's very important to note that when you combine the vote for the far left and far right candidates, more than 50% of the vote went against the sort of establishment neoliberal direction of France. So that's the first part. Let's put this next um, this next tear sheet up on the screen from Le Monde. They talk here about, you've got the official results, 57.4% for Macron, 42.6% for Le Pen, so not particularly close in the end. But they talk about here how large the numbers of abstentions actually were. The abstention rate was on course for about 28%. That means people who just said, neither, right? I don't want either of these people. I'm staying home. I'm casting a blank ballot. I'm not— picking either one of these candidates, 28%. That would be the highest in any presidential election second round runoff since 1969. Wow. So clearly voters not in love with these choices. And by the way, perhaps part of the reason why is because they report high on Macron's to-do list once he's, you know, back in office is pension reform, raising the French retirement age. So cutting back on social benefits. This has been, there have been, you know, his... Tenure has been already racked with protests. They had the yellow vest movement against uh, gas tax increases. He's been, in terms of economics, you know, just standard neoliberal and very dis- dissonant from uh, some of the social welfare traditions in France. Let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen that just has the margin, fifty-eight forty-two. So again, not that close. And um, you can see, go ahead and put the next tweet up on the screen. You can see as we got closer to election day that the area where it was sort of like the tightest there on the screen, April 10th, that was right during the first round of voting. And ever since then, Macron has been gaining and gaining and gaining. So his message of basically like, Listen, you may not like me all that much, but we got to be a bulwark against the right. Seems to have worked. I know also that there were uh, a lot of attacks from him on Le Pen over her ties to Russia, you know, as the Ukraine conflict continues to unfold. So- that's what the lay of the land looks like there. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, In terms of
3: Macron, I mean, he was an incredibly unpopular politician, but that's actually kind of par for the course. Now, unfortunately, some U.S. people are trying to read into this. One of them being the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, put up this tweet. He says, quote, an interesting observation, just FYI. President Macron appears to have secured a double-digit victory over Le Pen at a time when his approval rating is 36%. Now, that's incredibly low IQ and dumb for a variety of reasons. Number (laughs) (laughs) one, uh, last time I checked, we live in an electoral college, not a direct democracy in terms of national popular vote. And uh, I think Biden would have to have a 52 to a 54% margin just to win the electoral college. So that's number one. Number two, we don't have a runoff system, a la what we have been previously. So that might actually cut across. But third, you really want to celebrate the fact that the guy won. And, you know, look, On the one hand, Macron, it was a blowout. On the other, I mean, he comes into a much weaker position. His party does not look well poised when the upcoming parliamentary elections. France is obviously, you know, ensconced in turmoil. So you really want to celebrate a win on that? And just acknowledging how unpopular you are looks completely ridiculous. Now, in terms of the election itself, what you were talking about with the crossover vote, let's put this up there. 42% 42% of first-round Melanchon voters actually backed Macron in the election. Now, 42% could be looked at as a lot, or it could be looked at as really not that much, given the fact that Melanchon actually said nobody should vote for Marine Le Pen. So a high level of abstention. And this was the yeah. lowest so rate of turnout.
2: 42% for uh, Melanchon voters right. backing Macron, and 17%. Backing Le Pen, so many more went with Macron. Right, but you can see quite a number just said nah. Yeah, blank. You know, none of the above.
3: I think that's what's really nuts. And and like I said, in terms of his National Assembly, what he looks poised to win, who knows? In terms of how this works out, but the polls there seem more accurate. Let's put this up there, which is 66 percent say they do not want him to obtain a majority of seats in the National Assembly, which would all but spell doom for that pension reform and uh, and and all of that. Now, in terms of the uh, the in terms of deeper on, in terms of the election. Get in the context of Le Pen. There's a lot going on here. Let's put with Daniel, who we had on the show. I actually kind of disagree with his uh, his point here. He says important note of caution: is the highest that the far right has gotten. In 2002, Jean-Marie Le Pen got 18%. Five years ago, Le Pen got 34. This time, Le Pen gets 41 to 43. Now, I guess you could say that it is an accomplishment in order to get to 41 to 43. But in the context of any other politics, getting beat by 50, you know, what is it? 56, 43? That it's terrible. I mean, that's a complete blowout. So really the story to me is one we said from the beginning. The story is that the center left and the center right in France are dead. There is a weird neolib constituency in Macron, but he still created his own party. He's got elements of the right, he's got elements of the left, he's got elements of the center. He destroyed the center left. Le Pen also just remains really just a complete non-starter figure for a large portion of the French population. They're willing to begrudgingly vote for him. And in terms of the right, the Gaullist center right party, which ruled France for, I don't even know, for decades. Dead, gone. That's the story to me, which is that you see these two independent candidates, which are now assembling new coalitions, and how that shakes out in the history of France. This is We're going to look back on this period and say this was a big, big moment in their history as to how a new coalition and a new center is, is evolving.
2: It, it's really fascinating, and it is. there's a lot of temptations to make analogies with American politics, mm-hmm. and I think some of them are apt. Certainly, we can see it in, you know, our a reflection, our own politics of having these two choices that, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't terribly excited about um, having, you know, the message of basically like, look, you may not love me, but you got to be super scared of this person yeah, over here. Right. So you got to suck it up and suck it up and vote for Macron in this case. Right. And ultimately, that won the day. So similar to Biden versus Trump, That message was compelling enough for uh, Macron not just to to win, but win here by a comfortable margin. Um, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that his political strategy looks sort of like what Biden's political strategy looks like right now, which is basically to um, piss off your own base. So Macron, since he's come into office, has, on cultural issues in particular, decidedly moved to the right, thinking like this will be a bulwark against Le Pen and against other right candidates. But instead, what he did is just pissed off everybody on the left so that you ended up having this, you know, large abstention among the left wing that, you know, would want to stand against the right. And so it ended up making the election closer than it might have been had he not gone down that path. And then I also think that you see, you know, (laughs) this— hollow neoliberalism that everyone hates, I shouldn't say everyone, but many people really hate, that's basically rejected by the population that leads Macron to have 36% 36% approval rating, very similar, again, to Joe Biden. But that message of, yeah, but the alternative is worse is enough for people to sort of, you know, suck it up and deal with a lot of things that they ultimately don't like. The story below the presidential level at the National Assembly, also super fascinating because at the presidential level, you're right, the the center-right and the center-left pol- uh, parties that dominated French politics for decades are like they got decimated. They weren't even a factor in this president, either of the presidential runoffs. Now, at the National Assembly level, it is a little bit of a different picture. But you see uh, Mélenchon, the left in France, quite emboldened right now, too, because even though they didn't make the runoff, he didn't make the runoff, he came a lot closer than he was ultimately being predicted. Yes. And because you have this large sentiment in favor of sort of a bulwark against Macron and some of the economic policies that he wants to pursue, they're really hoping to make some big gains at the National Assembly level. So I do think it's really interesting. I think it's very telling that clearly Ron Klain is taking, you know, Biden chief of staff, Ron Klain is taking something from this, basically saying like- look, we don't have to do any better. We don't have to deliver uh, on material politics for people or, you know, stop pissing people off or actually govern well. You all can really not be too into Joe Biden and think he's doing a terrible job. And we still think we got a decent shot to win the election because Trump is that much worse. That's a very, very depressing state of politics that, frankly, we've been living in for quite some time. I've
3: been living in this for a while. Uh, You know, in terms of what plagues the West, uh, that looks to be basically the same story. Germany, France, the UK, and here. It's not like Boris Johnson is super popular either. No,
2: no, he's not. (laughs) What a
3: sad state of affairs that we live in, huh?
2: It really actually is. I mean, when you think of it, it it really is an indictment of the whole neoliberal project over the past 40 years that, you know, we're— I don't know if you guys saw this news item. Bernie Sanders is still thinking of maybe I should right. run for president. And God bless him. I mean, I certainly support, like, the program and the agenda and, and what he has meant to the movement. But the fact that you have no standard bear that can follow yeah, up, like that, you no bench, that you have no bench, that you would seriously look around and be like, I guess I got to do it again is also in that, you know, on the neoliberal side, the best they they think they can do is Joe Biden. I mean, Kamala Harris, completely Mm -hmm. disaster. So it is kind of an indictment of the whole project that we've been engaged in for a number of decades. And look
3: over on the I mean, after Trump, like, who is it, right? It's like a clown car of a bunch of people who want to try and fill his shoes. So, you know, it's an ever-present story, unfortunately potential e good news, depending on how you feel about it. Let's go ahead and move on here. Elon Musk, so there is breaking news this morning. This is what we had last night cut. Let's put it up there on the screen. Twitter is re-examining Elon Musk's bid, and it may be more receptive to the deal. Hmm. Now, since that time, we actually have some breaking news that came out this morning that a deal could be signed as soon as today. Now, what they say is that the Twitter is very likely to accept Musk's $43 billion offer. Now, this came after Elon actually secured funding officially per an SEC filing. Let's put that up there on the screen. Now, what they said is that he secured the $46.5 billion in funding. He was meeting with activists and bigger investors all over the weekend. Reports, Crystal, that over the last couple of hours that they had been on the phone in the wee hours of the day, that they were negotiating the fine points of the deal. In terms of what the deal actually looks like, we still don't uh, 100% know. The reason that this is significant is that the big question mark around Musk was, does he actually have the dollars? And that's... That question was, of course, solved whenever he put forward the SEC filing officially saying that he had the money. And then you point to the fact that a deal could come as soon as today with serious negotiations that are happening. The original poison pill appears to have been tossed out the window. I think what this comes from is that they were very skeptical, and I think rightfully so, given his past actions on Tesla. They were like, We don't think that he has the money. Mm -hmm. So when he came forward with that letter, saying, look, here's 46.5, I've got the cash, let's go. Then I think they were forced from a fiduciary responsibility in order to actively consider the deal. And given that their stock is not doing all that well, and this is a significant premium upon their stock, they have really no choice without facing a massive amount of lawsuits. That's the analysis that we basically gave everyone at the top. We're like, look, I mean, from a shareholder perspective, you can't not do right by the shareholders by giving them a 20% premium, and this would make it so that Musk outright owning the company, keeping it private, and then being able to enforce whatever content policy he wants without the whims of the public markets. It really is, I mean, it's going to be extraordinary if it actually goes through. Well,
2: the one potential legal avenue that they had to argue that we could reject this deal that, yes, it's at a premium, Mm -hmm. but it may not be in the best interest of the shareholders because ultimately he has values that are separate and apart from just the financial performance of the company. So that was one one thing that people had floated of basically how they can get out of this bind of their legal requirement to act in the best interests of the shareholders. Um, I think you're correct, though, that, you know, that just became sort of untenable yeah, once yeah, the money was possible. on the table right. and it was this significant of a premium over where the stock price has been. Um I just, you know, at a macro level, I think we should always keep in mind with this story what a dim state of affairs it is that our sort of public square and speech is subject to the whims of a small handful of elite overclass. Right. Like, whatever their whims are, good, bad, and dim, whether you happen to agree with this one or that one or the other one, that's not a good place for us to be in, that we have to, like— hope that this particular billionaire and what they feel like doing today is going to be ultimately good for the functioning of our democracy. I think that's a sad state of affairs. Um, With regards to Musk himself, you know, I mean, I am hopeful that his content moderation policies will be more in line with the healthy functioning of a democracy, less censorious, less in that direction, especially the direction Twitter has moved in since Jack stepped down as CEO, which has been very troubling. So, you know, am I hopeful that this particular billionaire might be a little bit better on those things? Yes. Um, There may be some other decisions that we ultimately don't like. I personally am not a fan of the idea of adding the edit button, something that he has purportedly been interested in.
3: The edit button is a terrible idea. It is a terrible idea. Everybody has gone viral. Okay, anybody who is in the game, this business has gone viral and has misspelled something, perhaps done something wrong. Guess what? You know what the best thing to do is, and this is my policy? If I tweet something which is wrong or I did incorrect, anytime I delete a tweet, I delete it, and then I screenshot it, and I say, this is why Why I deleted it. Why I deleted it. if you just reply and be like, hey, I got this wrong, the fake news or the fake part of it could still go viral. Right. And with an edit button, it would make it so that we could potentially have a tweet that goes viral for 100,000 and somebody edits it and you look at it and you think that the edited version is why it went. Or if somebody gets dunked on. Look, this is very— Or you know,
2: like, what if you what if you retweet something yeah. and then it gets, edited, oh, right. and then it gets edited say something that you don't agree with. Exactly. That you don't want to, you know, yeah. endorse if your retweets equal endorsements. Um, so I'm not a fan of the edit button. I I also just like the, like, humanizing aspect of seeing all of our fuck-ups and, like, spellings and autocorrects and all that stuff. So that part of it I'm very opposed to. But I would say that's a smaller issue than, you know, the speech issues because Twitter— why this matters so much and why we followed it so closely and why there's been such a panic and freak out among a large set of sort of elite journalists in particular is because Twitter really is disproportionately powerful in terms of impacting elite discourse. Mm-hmm. It is not—by far, it is not the most uh, widely used social media platform, but— When you're talking about journalists and opinion makers, this is where they go to say their piece. This is where they go oftentimes to like get, which maybe they should do a lot less, but to gather information about how people are feeling about different things. So that's why it matters so much to the functioning of our democracy.
3: It's funny too, uh, in terms of what you're saying, you know, Snapchat's earnings uh, and reports came out. They have 115 million more daily active users than Twitter. Really? Yeah, ask yourself, does Snapchat punch at the same level of culture cultural relevance as Twitter? No, and actually it fits really with our show as well. People ask me all the time, they're like, how come you guys aren't more active on Twitter? I'm like, dude, I don't care about Twitter. The majority of the people who watch our show and consume our content do so on YouTube, to a limited extent on Instagram, and then to a far more limited extent on TikTok where we have those channels. That's it. That's where the vast majority of people actually are. Yeah. As in, I care about reaching the maximum amount of people People not necessarily being you know, amongst elite cachet because that's a much smaller audience. And for this show, we talk about populist things and about things that are affecting real people's lives. Majority of real people are not on Twitter. Many people don't even have a Twitter account. The only time that we really engage on Twitter is either A, in order to make an announcement just because it's sufficient, or B, in order to, you know, penetrate uh, the—in order to penetrate elite discourse. When I talk about media and and stuff like that, I'm doing it very pointedly at the specific media elites who I know shadow follow me or follow me because I'm subtweeting them. Whereas here on the show, I don't care about any of those people. I know they're going to watch anyway, and it's fine, free country. Uh, What I want to do is reach the majority of the people, and that's what we do here so in terms of the usages of social media platforms, it's it's just important to note Twitter is important for elites. And the reason why that that matters is because elites run your life, my life, and all of ours. So Mm -hmm. the content policies on that platform have an outsized impact. At the same time, it doesn't matter uh, for a lot of people because they're not even on the platform in the first place. I would just say, I really hope that uh, it works out from a content perspective. Musk's strategy saying, I don't care about the economics at all, really, in my opinion, is the only way to run Twitter. Twitter's not a very good business. It's probably a couple billion dollar a year profit based upon advertising, but it's long-term prospects of adding daily active users and changing the product. The core product is what it is. There's not a lot of innovation really to be had and I think that's fine. But the problem is that doesn't work with the stocks, right? You could have a situation where your product could grow by 20% or something like that yeah. and your stock still goes down because, it's, oh, Wall Street expected 25%. Right. So keeping it private, in my opinion, probably the best move.
2: Possibly. I mean, yeah. I personally would like to see like total government takeover (laughs) that we have, you know. I mean, because honestly, then at least you you have some democratic accountability. I mean, what I'm really interested in with all these platforms is I think the more neutral they can be, the better. Mm -hmm. And I mean that both from a content moderation standpoint, you know, you have a set of rules. They should be as hands-off as possible. And then they have to be um, religiously ap- applied consistently. Yeah. And there isn't a single platform out there that meets that standard right now. And then the other piece, which is less relevant for Twitter, but still relevant, is what content is being served to people. And, you know, seeing and having transparency of how those algorithms ultimately work. Because that shapes what you see, and how people communicate, how they even, how their brains work, that shapes all of that so incredibly. And so the fact that on YouTube, for example, we have no insight, that it's just a total black box, zero insight into how they're picking content to serve and what that recommendation algorithm looks like, I think that's really damaging as well. So, you know, on Twitter, they moved to this system where, you know, they used to just show you whatever came up in your feed next, And now you have to choose, like, actively... You have to choose that option because the default is, we're going to pick for you what we mm-hmm. think you'd be into. And you know, the facts of the matter is, they're actually pretty good at that. Like, oftentimes, I find that feed that they sort of curated for me to be very useful. But it also makes the platform less neutral and makes it so that they have more control over what things are get- getting seen, what things are going viral, what things you feel like are most central and most important. And ultimately, I think that's a direction that is a problem for democracy. Yeah,
3: on uh, at least one thing on in Musk's cap, he is saying he wants to make the algorithm transparent. And I think that would be great. That would be great. I, I mean, I want to see
2: that on, I, w- I would love to see that on every platform because then at least you have the information and it would be, you know, better if we had sort of democratic accountability and had these things run more like public utilities because I do think that they are critical infrastructure in terms of the function of our society. But at the very least, just like with the Stock Act, if you have that transparency, mm-hmm. then people can do the reporting, they can expose what's really going on, and then you can have some sort of a populist democratic um, backlash to demand things be moved in a different direction, to demand, for example, that you don't have— CNN and Fox News and MSNBC propped up to the extent that they very clearly are by YouTube.
3: It's an interesting conversation around tech, too. I was talking with a friend of mine, Ram Krishnan. He's a venture capitalist. He actually used to work at Twitter for Jack Dur- Dorsey. And one of the—he put out a video where he put a recommendation on, which is that if we could control our own algorithm, more what I mean is you could opt as a user into the default recommendation algorithm. Give me the stuff that's going to make me engage the most. But now, that's the default because of advertising. But if you move away to a different business model or if if you just give that up altogether. Let's say that we wanted to choose the consecutive timeline. You and I work in news. I don't care about the recommendation algorithm. I want to know what's happening right now. So yeah. I, could, I could opt into that. You could also opt into like an entertainment algorithm. You could opt into different ones that the company could select and give you different options over your user experience. I think that would be a lot more empowering for the user. And it moves more in a direction of like, the tech should work for us, not we should work yeah. for the tech. Well, the other, yeah.
2: pr- the, the other big cent- Central problem um, that was written about in uh, the book Stolen Focus mm-hmm. is the advertising driven model. Yes. Because right. the, the, that makes the whole incentive how do we, not to how do we satisfy you and make you have a good, pleasant, like edifying experience how do we keep you here keep you clicking keep you agitated mm. right that's that's the whole ecosystem because it is driven by ad dollars the more time you're there the more emotions like good bad or indifferent that you're having about the content that you're serving the better it is for sort of the you know capitalist advertising system and so which is again why we thought really carefully about our business model yep. to move it you know away from depending on ad dollars and towards depending on um, membership fees because that just gives you a different set of incentives than if you're just wanting people to click and be mad or be disgusted or be fearful. Um, So I think that, like, super advertising-driven model is another really pernicious problem at the core of all of these social media platforms. If we were
3: just straight YouTubers, our only goal would be to put out videos with as much clickbait or whatever as possible and just keep time on platform and the retention rate as high as possible. Sometimes you do a clip that's only three minutes. You know why? Because it's only three minutes worth of stuff to say. Uh, Dragging it out for a long period is not good for the user, and it's not good for us. It's worse content, but that's what the incentives actually look like. So, you know, just gives you a good uh, behind-the-scenes into what that would look like with an alternative funding model. With a direct-to-subscription, we can give you the best product that we want to give right. you. Right. That's the And
2: I think the, the distance between what YouTube promotes mm-hmm. and what actual human beings would choose for themselves was really uh, demonstrated by when we asked our premium subscribers, what do you want us to talk about? Yeah, right. And it was wildly different than what, you know, the YouTube mm-hmm. sort of algorithm would push to people and would ultimately reward. So... Um, For me, I think that says it all about the distance between what these platforms are actually serving you and creating and incentivizing versus what people would actually enjoy and find to be useful in their lives. Some good news. Okay. As I previewed before, we have… Election number two at another Amazon facility on Staten Island. That voting begins this morning. My understanding is it will complete this week, so we may know by the end of the week whether the new Amazon labor union will go two for two. I do think this is, you know, I don't think we should take this for granted whatsoever. It's a very different facility, Um, as Chris Smalls uh, told me and has told said publicly. It's a sorting facility. You have a lot more part-timers, so the concerns are different. That's a much more difficult workforce. to organize. Also, um, because this may not even be their main bread and butter, they may have two other jobs, but another job, you know, something else that is their sort of main source of income. So there are a lot of challenges here, not to mention, of course, Amazon's over-the-top union busting, which reportedly they ramped up considerably after the stunning victory at um, JFK 8, the Staten Island uh, warehouse. So, Big news from yesterday is now the left politicians are fully engaged in the fight now that they have seen that this is a live issue and that Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer and all the rest of the folks at Amazon Labor Union are, in fact, capable of winning. Let's put this up on the screen. We had Bernie and AOC there on the ground in Staten Island, Um, still not in her district, interestingly, uh, Sagar, okay. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But uh, Listen, let me just say this. Because obviously, you know, I got into a back and forth with AOC, who was sort of trying to, uh, you know, take a little bit of credit for the initial mm-hmm. win when she had not only not been involved, but she'd actively stood these workers up and she pushed back of like, this isn't even in my district. This is all I wanted. Look, mm-hmm. I'm glad to see her show up and engage in the fight now. And we have to provide some accountability to these politicians. And this is not coming from me. This is from Chris Smalls. Typically, the only consequence would be on the other side. If she did show up and then it ended up in some sort of like embarrassing defeat, that would be the concept she'd be worried about, you know, does this damage my credibility and my strength and my brand, all of those things. So if you push back when they don't show up, you have to have some consequences and some costs on the other side for failing to back workers and stand up um, and support them in the first place. So I am very glad to see that she has joined this fight. Um, and, you know, they... They said, ultimately, Derek Palmer had a great quote here. He says, starting this movement in the beginning, we did not have the support that we do now. And now that we won, I'm just glad that everyone's finally waking up and realizing the power that we have. We've woken the country up and I want us to continue on this journey, Sagar.
3: Yeah, and luckily, thanks to our new partnership with uh, Jordan Sheridan, we have some exclusive footage of an interview with Derek Palmer. Let's take a listen.
4: You know, after the win, you know, it's been a historical win. You know, a lot of workers are now motivated you know they've come to me congratulating me text email calls you know so um, I think the tide is definitely shifting after that win you know the labor movement you know was kind of asleep, and now it's, it's definitely awakened for sure and, and now we're getting that support from the community as well and workers actually want to get involved with organizing now which is the goal so um I, I only see it spreading like wildfire throughout the United
5: States to ask you because uh bernie had mentioned when he spoke that uh before he spoke uh you guys privately met and he was surprised he didn't know the full extent of the union busting uh do you know do you think a lot of the politicians kind of like maybe know some bad things are going on but don't know like how bad in terms of the threats retaliation
4: yeah you know they hear you know they hear the stories but you know it's nothing like being on the grounds, talking to workers, you know, so they can really get the full scope
5: of what's going on here. And uh, obviously there was some criticism of AOC kind of flaked on you during the campaign. Uh, what does it say to you that she showed up? Because obviously a lot of people are saying, oh, she's trying to ride their coattails, but I think it's helpful to actually winning to yeah, have her out here. today. Yeah, I mean, you know,
4: AOC gets a lot of scrutiny, but, you know, it was, it was all the politicians, let's be real, who didn't show up. But, you know, now that they're here, you know, they're they're motivated. And, you know, ultimately, AOC wants what's best for workers as well as Bernie Sanders. Um, so their support here means a lot. And moving forward, you know, they're, they're all they're all in. You know, we, we had a nice conversation back there at the Hilton and, you know, they want to support 110 percent.
5: Hey, I'm with Charles, uh, your supporter of Amazon Labor Union. Yeah. You know, I've covered this for about a year, I've never seen so much press and support here. Can you kind of talk about uh, what got you involved with supporting the workers here? And what did you think of uh, Bernie and AOC speaking?
4: Uh, I think this speech was right on time. Um, for me, I am a rep with a union called the UE, United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. I'm based in Virginia, so we came all the way up here on, two, or on Thursday of this past week to help support. So we've been doing phone banking. We've been out in the parking lot talking to workers and all that. And right now, for me, I'm actually helping organize city workers down there. So the struggle is real and it's across the board. So we recognize that a victory for Amazon is a victory for the labor movement as a whole. Same with Starbucks and all these other places.
5: Andy Jassy, who's Amazon CEO, don't yeah. don't fool it. Bezos is still driving the bus. Oh, yeah. uh, but Andy Jassy was on CNBC uh, after the victory here he said a place like amazon empowers employees if they see something they could do better for customers or for themselves they could just go meet in a room decide how to change it and change it uh you guys you didn't have to do this all you had to do was go meet in a room and change it yourself
6: no i mean that's that's ridiculous it's bullshit frankly i mean we had a number of meetings with Felipe with assistant managers to try to get things changed. I mean, this whole thing started right with Chris's walkout. Before he led the walkout, he was trying to meet with managers every day. He was in HR office every day, trying to just get them to make changes about COVID or just tell people that COVID was being spread around and they wouldn't do it. So, I mean, these CEOs and bosses, like they can go on the news and spread all the lies they want, but the workers know the truth.
2: Yeah, I mean, that idea that, oh, you could have just talked to that us. Was so weird. We would have yeah. totally listened and yeah. addressed your. Come on. That's so silly and ultimately ridiculous. Great footage from Jordan, by the way. And if you guys missed the beginning of the show when we announced this, so Jordan, Status Co., new Breaking Points partner. Mm -hmm. Um, He's going to be giving us more exclusive footage from his trips on the road. He also does great investigative journalism. Very excited about being able to add that piece to the ecosystem here. And you can see how valuable it ultimately is to actually hear from the workers who made this victory possible and how they feel ultimately about all of this. There's been a lot of of debate over maybe it wasn't a bad thing ultimately that the politicians didn't show up the first time around because they were able to kind of sneak under the radar, It was able to not be a partisan thing. But we also have to respect the fact the workers themselves see this as very helpful uh, and very energizing.
3: Look, it's up to them. They get to decide what they think is helpful and what is not helpful. I do think personally it was a benefit to them in the first one. This one is going to be different. We'll see how it goes. Oh, I think voting start right now. Right? Yes, yeah, that's so right.
2: It's like, voting starts right now. Right,
3: it's literally happening right now. right now. We'll find out. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 9.01 uh, when we're filming this uh, so you guys can get a little peek behind the scenes, so we will see how it plays out. In terms of the tech side of this, Crystal, this is really nuts. Let's put this up there on the screen, which is that the largest subreddit for Amazon workers has banned the word union, and it has 43,500 members who decided to censor union-related posts for, according to them, due to an influx of spam and outright malicious posts. Very interesting, isn't it, that censorship is always yielded based upon protecting the community whenever it's the word union.
2: Well, and um, so some members of that community, because they have it on basically like auto-censorship, so Uh if they just see the word union, then a bot takes it down automatically. So some of the members have started using onion instead of union (laughs) to get around it. Um, So they're not going to be stopped, but— yeah, this is really significant because obviously, listen, when you're working for Amazon in those warehouses, I mean, you can ask Chris or any of these folks, you are it it really is relentless the pace. Mm-hmm. So you have very little time to talk to your coworkers. You know, you've got bosses and supervisors and that multi-thousand dollar a day paid union consultants listening, listening over your shoulder to every word that you're ultimately saying. So online spaces like this are really important for organizing and building solidarity. So for them to decide, oh, this is too controversial, we have to take it down, it really is very unfortunate. And I thought there was a good quote in this article from Vice 2 speaking to one of the pro-union Amazon workers who said, listen, when you ban the discussion of unions at a place with no unions, you are anti-union because you're preserving the anti-union status quo, and I thought that was a really good um, way to put it here. Ultimately, and by the way, don't forget we saw something very similar when Verizon workers, who now, basic, uh, by the way, have been successful. Some retail Verizon workers been successful in ultimately unionizing, but we saw the same thing with a significant Verizon worker forum where they also said, "Ah, this is we can't talk about this ultimately anymore." So um, this is a disturbing trend that we're seeing in a number of spaces as the worker momentum gains speed.
3: Yeah. I just think when you put it together and you really think about how exactly this works out, I've warned so long that content moderation policy will always be used by the establishment in order to push back against Mm -hmm. dissidents. Every time, Uh, I remember during the fact-checking era, when it was like, oh, we need fact-checks on Trump tweets. I was like, okay. Just wait until AOC runs against Chuck Schumer or something in a debate and then she tweets something about Medicare for All and somebody at Twitter, or you know, previously before Elon Musk possibly owned it, that they go ahead and, and slap a fact check on it. That literally happened with the Washington Post, just so you're aware. So do you want them to set fact-checking policy for the entire nation? I don't. So whenever it comes to this content moderation, as long as, it is, as, long as it's within the first bounds of the First Amendment, I think it's ludicrous to try and crack down because it will always be used in this type of environment. People yeah. really need to be wary of it. It always comes for the people who are dissidents. Yes,
2: that is exactly right. There's also some big news with the Starbucks unionization drive, which has just been picking up steam mm-hmm. by the day. It really is pretty incredible. That's what Stephen Greenhouse's tweet here up on the screen. So uh, baristas at a Starbucks in Leesburg, Virginia, voted overwhelmingly 23 to one to unionize, according to the NLRB's count. This means that despite Starbucks' fierce anti-union efforts, the union's overall record increases to 29 Nine wins versus three losses. So they did suffer one very close defeat um, down in Florida. It was 14 to 13. Other than that, the Starbucks Workers United movement has been just racking up victories one after another after right. another since the very early days. There were a couple of early losses, and since then, they seem to have just picked up tremendous speed in spite of the fact they brought back Howard Schultz. And, you know, they're clearly upping the ante in terms of their union busting, firing workers. Um, that's the other big piece that happened here is the NLRB has now uh, gone to court to demand that some of the fired workers be reinstated in immediately yeah. because they're, you know, they're saying this was done illegally. They're continuing to, um, they're continuing to look into a number of these firings, which seem to be direct retaliation for union organizing. But it's pretty extraordinary. And, you know, a number of these victories to Sagar have been unanimous. Yes. Like, this one is 23 to 1, so it's very close to unanimous. But a number of these have been 100% of the voting workers said, yes, we want a union, in spite of everything they've been subjected to, which I think is just extraordinary and also speaks to how a lot of these union-busting tactics right now in this climate are just not working and completely backfiring.
3: It's pretty interesting to me because what I see is that Starbucks is kind of the perfect ground. You know, I I, I hate to say it, but on Amazon, like you were saying, with a high High turnover workforce, which is already company policy, and then you have short-term contract workers, it's going to be difficult, right? Especially in order to keep it sustained. But Starbucks, from what I can tell, based on what you told me, they have longer-term employment, they don't have as much turnover in terms of the workforce, more educated, more sympathetic toward union, and could make it so that the company's values, which always sold itself as like progressive, yeah. are backfired because their workforce is disproportionately more likely to be receptive to that message. Well, it seems like it could be, and, and is yeah. taking force as a national-wide movement.
2: I mean, any food service is going to have high turnover, including Mm -hmm. Starbucks. But what you see, I think with the Starbucks workers, is a disproportionate number of Bernie bros and Bernie gals. Um, There was an article early on, I think by the New York Times, that interviewed a number of the early organizers. Mm -hmm. And quite a few of them said— I volunteered for the Sanders campaign and that changed how they were thinking about this. I mean, it just was like raised awareness around what they could do and how they could push back. And of course, Bernie throughout his career has been a um, strong supporter, standing with labor. Um, on that note, we do have a little bit of footage at Bernie of Bernie at the rally for Amazon. I have to say, I don't know if you guys saw, there were some pictures. I posted one of them to my Instagram, shameless plug, Crystal M. Ball, <laughs> yes. over on check Instagram. But check it out. But... Um, these incredible photos of Chris Smalls with Bernie Sanders, which really were, you know, pretty extraordinary to see. And you'll see the sort of like warmth between the two of them at the rally. Let's take a look at a little bit of that.
4: But I'm so proud to be standing here with my brothers and sisters and my comrades and the community. I was here to support. Without further ado, though, I want to bring up Senator Sanders from Vermont, who, drove, who came here to stand aside there with these Amazon workers today. Thank you, Senator.
2: And Bernie seemed to be very well-received there. But you just love to see that, like, across the generations, across race, Mm -hmm. religion, all of it. I mean, that's, that's a labor movement at its best, and that's what solidarity really means at its best. So, listen, these politicians were late showing up, but better late than never.
3: They showed up, yeah, and I think that's what matters. We'll see how it turns out on the vote. Joining us now is the great Sarah Fisher of Axios. Sarah, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you joining us.
6: Hey, thanks for having me. Love this show.
3: Thank Aw, you very thank much. Thank you. you the, appreciate
6: your reporting. We've you are one of the best.
3: Sarah, you were one of the first to really give us some insight into the downfall of CNN+. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. You first had the instance that they were uh, inside the chaotic collapse there. You first had the reporting that they were suspending marketing operations. And then you were one of the first to the story in terms of talking about the demise. Sarah, I've always respected you as just a great analyst of inside media companies and what's happening here. What exactly happened with the death of this person? Uh, product that they poured $300 million into?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. So about two years ago, CNN executives thought we really need to get ahead of the linear TV decline. Let's launch a bigger foray into streaming. Now, you have to remember, CNN has experimented with streaming for a really long time. They started CNN Pipeline in the 2000s. They had CNN Go, which is an app that still exists, but it really just allows you to stream the live cable network through authenticating your cable login. They had Great Big Story, which ended up shutting down a few years ago. And so they never really nailed a smart streaming direct-to-consumer app. And so executives said, we're going to do it. In 2021, they start to make a lot of moves towards that. You know, At this point, they hired Alex McCallum, a product whiz from the New York Times, they acquired an app called Canopy, which sort of supported news aggregation apps, and they were ready to build. But the one thing they may not have seen coming was that their parent's parent company, AT&T, was being straddled with so much debt from its media acquisitions that it was looking to spin off Warner Media, which is CNN's parent. And in May, we found out that the decision was made to spin it off and merge it with Discovery, which is run by David Zasloff. The challenge here became Discovery's streaming bet was to build one giant general entertainment app by combining HBO Max and Discovery+. Plus, But they didn't really have in their long-term vision standalone smaller subscription apps. And that's because they've tried that before. Discovery had launched Golf TV. They had a Food Network app that were all subscriptions and they were tough to build. And so when it came time for the merger to close, you had a, f- a bunch of different things that made Discovery very wary about introducing CNN Plus. First, in February, CNN's longtime leader Jeff Zucker had to resign in a shocking resignation, and that really put Discovery executives on edge. You know, he was the person that would be leading this charge; he's no longer going to be there. And then leading up to the merger, AT&T was very conservative. They didn't want to talk to Discovery because they were afraid of regulatory scrutiny. And so Discovery didn't have great visibility into what was happening at CNN Plus. And by the time they did in April, when that merger closed, what they saw was CNN had poured hundreds of millions of dollars into an app that they were worried would not become profitable within the four-year timeline that CNN had sketched out. And instead of waiting to make the decision whether or not they were going to support this effort or not, Discovery execs thought that what would be safest would be just to pull the plug early, and that way they could save heartache down the line. And so it's an unfortunate thing. you know, Hundreds of jobs are likely going to be lost. A lot of hundreds of millions of dollars were already spent and wasted. But I guess the silver lining here is that Discovery took quick and decisive action as opposed to dragging this thing on a few more months.
2: Yeah, I mean, you sort of have to respect the fact that they, you know, looked at the writing on the wall and the early uh, numbers, which were reported by you and others, which were very poor, you know, fewer than 10,000 people watching in a day, which is, you know, really pathetic, especially when you have that level of spend on marketing. But why did CNN push forward with this and decide to keep the launch date where it was to start with when, you know, it wasn't a secret. We talked about it here. I know you reported on it as well that Discovery preferred to go in this direction, that it was likely to, that the CNN Plus um, streaming service would be bundled inside of a larger um, streaming offering. So why did they push forward anyway, knowing that you know this was very much a possibility?
6: Well, I think you have to look at the number. We reported that there were 150,000 people that decided to pay within those two and a half weeks. I don't think CNN executives saw that as a huge failure. I think uh-huh. the challenge is, Like any type of subscription streaming, you have to inject a lot of capital upfront before you can get the payoff later, and that includes marketing. And so it wasn't necessarily that they thought this thing was going to be so awful, although you're right, some of the daily viewership numbers were low. I think it was just that the amount of money they would need to continue to spend to get the numbers to go up would be exorbitant. And that's what Discovery was afraid of. Remember, they're running what is a legacy profitable cable business. It's a different model than something like Netflix or even like an Uber, where you can afford to inject a lot of capital upfront for some sort of payoff late. And so I think that's the reason why there is a discrepancy. CNN wanted to move forward. One, I think there was a little bit of, you know, sort of emotional... Uh, decision-making there, right? They wanted to stake a claim in CNN's digital future before the merger. But I also think, too, is that they thought that this was probably successful in a way Discovery just did not.
3: Right. I mean, Sarah, what does the broader cable industry look at this, and what's their takeaway? I mean, this is something which is a big problem for them, and I talk about it all the time, which is that their main value add on Linear is live TV, which they're not allowed to put on streaming. And a lot of their content on streaming I mean, I'll say editorially, you don't have to say it. I don't think it's very good. So what exactly are they trying to do to plan for their future? Because I'm not a genius. You know, anybody can look at the upcoming negotiation for live TV, streaming, and linear and say they're in a real problem in terms of what their future is going to look like.
6: So everyone's obviously going about streaming as their future, but they're doing different uh, strategies. So one strategy is that Direct to consumer subscription model. And some cable networks have been absolutely brilliant about spinning that forward, most notably HBO. You know, HBO mm-hmm. was a premium right. cable network that they've been able to spin into a smart direct to consumer subscription. The other option is free and ad supported. And I think it's notable that Netflix said this past earnings that they're going to experiment with an ad supported tier. And that's just because if you take a look at consumer spend, Consumers have said consistently over the past few years, even throughout the pandemic, they're only willing to spend around $40 a month on subscription streaming services. Other than that, it's going to have to be free ad-supported. And so I think what's going to be the future for CNN, Discovery is actually probably going to double down on CNN's free ad-supported app. You have to remember, CNN's core digital app is one of the most widely consumed news apps in the world. It's one of the most widely trafficked. So they'd actually be wise to put some video on there, sell some premium video ads against it. I think for other major cable networks, it really depends on sports or not. If you're really invested in live sports, this is a tough one. I think ESPN's done a pretty good job. You put some rights on streaming, some on linear, and you kind of have to do a balancing act. But if you don't have sports at this point, pretty much the biggest strategy is get as much of your content as you can on streaming, whether it's through an ad supported streaming venture, or subscription. And even if it's not the most profitable part of your business right now, what you will have done is you will have planted the seeds, Mm -hmm. have consumer familiarity, have advertiser relationships, so that one day when that cable bundle sort of does collapse, you're at least ready to take on the future. Yeah, I think that's
2: well said. I mean, one of the things that irritated me, I saw some hot takes that were like, oh, You know, subscription based streaming news just doesn't work. And I think we're uh, here to tell you that that's not the case. Thank you. Um, But, you know, it is noteworthy that look, CNN, Fox, and MSNBC all have their own streaming efforts. CNN Plus was the highest spend and the splashiest rollout. And so it got a lot of attention that the numbers weren't, you know, very impressive. And of course, it collapsed almost instantly. But the MSNBC streaming service and the Fox News streaming service also don't seem to be exactly doing gangbusters. So what do you think it is about their formulas that just doesn't seem to have
6: much consumer appeal? I don't know the answer to that because I don't know the numbers. Like Mm. Fox has never revealed how many people subscribe to Fox Nation. I don't know how many people are viewing MSNBC's Peacock portal. But what I will tell you is you bring up a good point, which is we sort of have this barbell phenomenon. On one end, you have massive scale and really general interest services. And on the other, you have niche. And I would put breaking points in niche. Mm-hmm. Niche is doing excellent. Right now. If you can cater to a very high, uh, highly engaged audience, they're going to spend a lot of time with you. They're willing to give you a lot of money, and they're going to be very engaged because they like the very specific thing that you're providing for them. The problem is when you try to hit the middle, If you're not super broad and scaled or you're not super niche, you're going to have an issue. Now, Mm. when it comes to entertainment or leisure, it's pretty understandable where that barbell lies. There are going to be very, very, very niche entertainment subscription services that do well. My favorite example is Crunchyroll, which is bought by Sony, theater to anime fans. Great example of a niche service that does well. The problem with news is niche is really hard to figure out. You either lean into personality programming which you guys aren't necessarily political personality programming. You uh-huh. don't have necessarily a political take. But you do have very strong personalities. I mean, your brands are ones that I've been following since the Hill, And people know you as two distinct people. And so that was why I would put you in niche. Right. In the news sector, if you're not B2B, you know, catering to someone's professional news, if you're mm-hmm. not sort of personality programming like you guys are, then you have to be massive and broad. And the challenge with CNN is they actually should have and could have been massive and broad, but the way that the subscription streaming service was rolled out, I don't think they had the broadest appeal possible. You could blame that on marketing. You can blame that on competition. I don't know what it was, but it didn't go as broad as it probably would have needed to have gone.
3: I think that's really well Very
6: said. interesting analysis. Yep, oh,
3: Sarah. Sarah,
6: thank you so much.
2: Thank you for the great reporting that we have relied on here on this show many, many times. Appreciate we, it very we much. We rely
3: on you a lot. Everybody go subscribe to Sarah's newsletter. We'll have a link down there in the description. I read it all the time. So thank you very much. We appreciate it.
6: Thank you. I was just going to say, I feel the same way. Like when I have a question about how real people are thinking about things, I call you Sager. <laughs> yeah, <And> yeah. That's <laughs> like, so I appreciate it.
3: Well, uh, the, the appreciation goes both ways. Appreciate it very much. Take care, Sarah. Now, at the same time, though, speaking of people who have this job and who are in the liberal media, these people are freaking out about Elon's acquisition and specifically about the free speech aspect. As usual, we can count on the one, the only Brian Stelter for having the absolute worst take possible on this in immediate reaction. Let's take a listen.
5: Look, who knows? I, I think that's, a, a, that's, a, that's a, a, an example of a broader question for Twitter, which is, if you, uh, if you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for, for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party? Or are you going to decide to stay home? And that's a question for Twitter users. Some Twitter users might love the idea that there's going to be absolutely no moderation and no rules at all. Others might not want to be anywhere near that. Am I? Am I crazy, Matt? No, no, you're right. And what what happens to the advertising? I
7: mean, if there's no moderation or little moderation, do the right. advertisers stay away? What does that do to the yeah. the business prospects for Twitter itself? Right.
3: I
5: think that's very much an
3: that uh, that party sounds like a banger, Crystal. I don't know. <laughs>
2: you know, there's one thing. When I get invited to a party, the first right. thing I want to know what is are the there rules? are going to be rules in place, right? Because otherwise, right. I'm out. Right. I actually, like, I genuinely at this point have affection for Brian Stelter because <laughs> he tri- is trying so hard, Sagar. He is trying so hard. Wow. Hard. He spent time workshopping this whole party analogy thing yeah. in his head, and never once did it occur to him that actually people do want to go to parties without <laughs> rules. And it's, it's silly to start with because it's not like Twitter's going to have no rules. Right. Or that there are you know, no rules already bounding and guiding the limits of free speech. You cannot directly threaten somebody as one, you know, example. So it's not like it's going to be completely wild and crazy and anything, absolutely anything goes. Um, But yeah, the, the faces around the table... I don't know if you paid attention, they were like oh, yeah. ranging from what? contempt, confusion to just like humoring this poor guy before the other dude actually makes a decent point yeah, about I was gonna say the whole reason that the content moderation is what it is has been to satisfy the advertisers. Yep. So if you take that piece out of it and that's less important, not that it's gonna be completely unimportant, but if it's less important and you're actually just trying to figure out what is the right and consistent content moderation palette, you're much more likely to come up with something that is beneficial for everybody versus just trying to make it safe for a bunch of squeamish corporate
3: advertisers. 100%, and you know, you can also keep this with the rest. Of- also, I love how you put it that way. In Texas, we just say, bless your heart, Brian. Yeah, that's uh, it, that's yeah, it.
2: That's, that's, that's exactly
3: that's the, the sentiment. That's the <laughs> sentiment that you're putting forward. Let's put these up there on the screen. Some hilarious ones uh, from our friend, Shu. She says, today on Twitter, feels like the last evening in a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. Oh my
2: God. Another
3: one, I am frightened by the impact on society in politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe on social media anything goes. For democracy to survive we need more content, content moderation, not less. Another, if Elon Musk sexually purchases Twitter it could result in World War III and the destruction of our planet. And finally, dear Prag Agarwal, if you're reading this right now, the world needs to know you are stronger, smarter, and more tenacious than Elon Musk. He thinks he can beat you. The free world needs to know he is wrong. Yours truly, a lifelong and long verified Twitter user what a loser using your verified status it's not that cool bro trust me <laughs> the verge also came in with a hilarious take let's put this up there on the screen they say how to deactivate your Twitter account which is just absolutely incredible obviously they're one of those tech
2: uh, hall monitor type outlets well and there are plenty of liberals on Twitter who were like I'm deactivating, I'm not gonna yeah, oh Twitter. I'm this moving is to my Canada last tweet. I'm quitting Twitter etc which, Sean
3: King actually did it which you know
2: props to Sean King yeah, for finally leaving true. us all out. He had alone. a bit, he had big following yeah, yeah, too so followed. it's a real loss but yes. yeah I mean it's listen <laughs> There were so many bad takes all the way around. I don't know if you also saw this, but Richard Hanania, yeah. who is, you know, we've had him on the right. show before. He's, like, definitely, you know, on the right in terms of uh, his politics and definitely not terrified of uh-huh. Elon taking over. He tweeted out something sarcastically. Oh, his uh, like the trolling. master's thing. Yeah, that yeah, was like, by the way. being like, Elon Musk doesn't yep. even have a master's degree. <laughs> Are we going to trust this man with right. our democracy? And there were literally thousands of people who thought he was being serious. Oh, right. right. And he continued to like in the thread, yeah, make it more he's and more fine. ridiculous. Yeah. And they still did not get the joke. So you had people who just, like, di- you know, couldn't see sarcasm where there was obvious sarcasm. You had clearly, you know, the liberals that we're highlighting here who completely freaking out, who on- obviously were so much less concerned when Jeff Bezos bought one of the most significant and important news gathering organizations in the entire country, which he still owns. But that was fine. And in fact, not only was it fine, but if you, like Bernie Sanders do, point out that this could be a problem for democracy, you were roundly mocked, shamed, disparaged, et cetera, et cetera. How dare you attack our news outlets? So there was, you know, there was that reaction. And then I think there's for um, the, the segment of the right that has been rightly concerned about elite power and control, that is just... Completely celebratory about the idea of handing their fate over to a billionaire that they happen to have more affectionate feelings for. Which, again, you know, it's certainly not an answer to our bigger problems. Will it potentially be marginally better? Maybe. We'll wait and see. But if you're putting pinning all your hopes on like let's have a different, better billionaire, then I don't think you're going to end up ultimately in a good place.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, to try and add some substance to this, it's a really interesting poll that Teddy Scheifer actually tweeted out over Puck News. He does great w- work, by the way. Let's put this up there on the screen, is that there's a poll here highlighted by Data for Progress and at Recode. This was in February of 2021. Elon Musk is actually very popular across the board. So his favorability and unfavorability for Democrats is 52-22, meaning he has high favorability and a pretty unknown unfavorability. Amongst Republicans, his actually favorability is lower. It's 48-25. and 25. Amongst men, it's 61 66-21. Women is 37-27. Don't really have an opinion it seems, amongst young people is very popular, 54 to 22, and at 45 plus at 48 to 25. So what he says here, and I think is really true, is the real schism is really not a public opinion on Musk between Democrats and Republicans. It's between men and women. Yeah, that's and right. Really, when you point out the favorability, I just think it, it bears repeating that Normal people think of Elon in the context of Tesla and the context of SpaceX. They may have seen some of his antics, but they respect him as probably the greatest entrepreneur uh, in the U.S. over the last 20 years. And they don't really think about him beyond that. Well,
2: that's the, th- yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. Normal people probably just don't think that hard about yeah, him or like, yeah, have he, like he's, a really he's
3: fine. <laughs> super
2: evolved view on right. like all of the things that he's done or said or et cetera. And it is funny yeah, it was interesting to me that there was basically no partisan divide whatsoever. Yep. Um, it was very, very closely matched, uh, Democrat, Independent, and Republican. The big schism was dudes really love them. So mm-hmm. Elon Musk, I'll women, like Elon. not yeah. so sure. Um, and he does, I mean, just as his like, public persona, I don't know, there's something about him that's like— magical to men you know especially young men under the age of let's say 50 or 40 or something like that um there that is definitely where his key demo and his like core superpowers
1: lie well so. he's
3: like a teenager in a lot of ways i mean that's kind of how he behaves yeah uh, he's, i mean he's very childlike if, he, if you read his like i said he reads biography he literally talks about he's like his dream was to be a wizard <laughs> whenever he was a child <laughs> he had a very tough childhood to be fair apparently his dad was kind of a psycho and oh really? yeah, didn't treat him very well him and his brother and put a lot of. Uh
1: Anyway, on you should it. go and
3: read the book. Yeah, he, he was—he was not treated well. Apparently, he was very emotionally abusive as a father. Mm. But really, what they pulled into him is he was—he uh, was a huge nerd. I mean, that's really the only thing that comes out of it. He was bullied terribly whenever he was in high school. He was obsessed with computer games and coding, and that's why he became the computer scientist that he eventually became. But what you learn about him is that he's quite an impulsive person. He's a lot like a child. He said his dream, and now that he's a billionaire, is to be as much like a wizard as possible. <laughs> whenever he was interviewed, most recently. So I think that's why it appeals to like the um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the man did manifest several of his actual visions, which is a lot more than many people can say in life. So I think that you point to an interesting phenomenon there about what the actual divide is and probably why where it actually cuts ideologically. But it just points to the fact that these liberal you know, media folks, the establishment types are just so freaked out Because I think at the end of the day, they know that their ability to pressure Twitter in order to censor exactly as they want is over.
2: And that is where
3: the real power that they've had over the last several years has come from.
2: Well, they have this whole ideology that the way to combat ideas that they consider to be bad or dangerous ideas is just to shut them out. Mm -hmm. Um, To censor them, you know, push them out of polite society. And that, you know, I think there's a genuine fear and belief that— like, that's the way that we can keep this whole thing together. I just happen to think that's not only wrong, but extremely counterproductive and leads you down the path of ultimately destroying the democracy that you think you're trying to protect. And so their ideology depends on the ability to, you know, to have their ideology reinforced and have people who don't agree with that pushed out of the public square. So- I think that's why there's such a free count here versus, you know, what is Jeff Bezos, who is definitely not on the left in any meaningful sense, but is going to be anti Trump, yeah. is going to be, you know, with them more or less when it comes to social issues. They didn't perceive that as a threat. Even though, you know, anyone who's being consistent here should just see that billionaires controlling our news gathering, our public squares, is a big problem in society, whether you happen to be comfortable with that billionaire or not. Um, I saw another poll similar to this uh, data for progress poll that actually was an internal poll of twitter employees mm, yeah because a lot of the narrative around twitter employees is like they're freaking out and, oh my god they hate elon and they can't you know they are so worried about he's going to destroy twitter et cetera, et cetera. and i don't doubt that because like you said they're likely to be layoffs and they're mm-hmm. not sure what this means for their stock holdings and is the headquarters even going to stay in san francisco and are they going to be able to continue to work from home I don't doubt that there are a lot of concerns and angst around what it means literally for them and their livelihoods in their day to day. But in terms of sentiment around Elon, this particular poll internally, it was completely divided. Um, You had, you know, an equal amount that liked him, an equal amount that – didn't like him, and a group in the middle that was like, eh, ah, not sure,
3: we'll see. My guess would be that the technologists and the engineers are probably the ones who are most excited about him because they're more familiar with what he did at Tesla and at SpaceX. And my guess would be that the, like that lady who went on Joe Rogan's podcast, Vijay Agade, the head of like Trust and Safety, is probably freaking out because I hope that she gets fired. That's exactly the people, those are the people who are the chief censors. So the I would split the company into like the technologists are probably excited about Elon, and then the HR industrial you know, diversity industrial complex within the company is the ones who are freaking out the most. But look, maybe I'm who wrong. Who knows? Uh, I mean,
2: because you could also imagine a scenario where the people who are involved in content moderation have hated the fact that they've been constrained by corporate advertisers true. and their concerns. So who knows what the breakdown is? But I did find that interesting that the internal sentiments around him were not we're actually very evenly divided, at least according to this poll. Yeah,
3: I think a lesson of the show is always is things are a lot more complicated than people think. Okay, let's move on. This is a very important uh, report here. Let's put it up there on the screen, which is, interestingly enough, it says how U.S.-Saudi relations reachin- reached the breaking point mm, as to why we named this show what it is. What they point to here is that Saudi Prince MBS – confronted Jake Sherman, the national security advisor of the United States, and began yelling at him. And what's very important in this report is that Saudi Prince MBS basically said, we will never speak about this again. Now, he was so, so upset about Mr. Sullivan that he shouted at him and basically said that he would be banishing him from the room and that the U.S. could forget about its request to boost oil production. So that is the significant part of all of this, which is that Whenever and also I love the description. He was wearing shorts. Yeah, at his seaside I, palace I already
2: felt was very disrespectful. Oh, of course, right? This is how they. This is how they play. This right? is they like can, an alpha move. Like can, I don't even have to get dressed up for you. I'm right. just gonna oh. be here relaxing in my shorts.
3: I have heard stories about MBS and about the way that he would treat U.S. diplomats and like he would specifically make them come on his yacht or whatever in the south of France in order to show his fake Mona Lisa or his fake Leonardo. Oh
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> and uh, like try right, and, and pull all of these uh, meetings. That's another story for another time. But I think that the important part is that shouting at him and specifically tying any criticism on the Jamal Khashoggi killing to U.S. oil production just shows the Saudis demand total subservience from the Americans. We are supposed to do anything that they want. Oh, they want our weapons? Give it to them. Don't say a damn thing about Yemen. If you talk about Yemen, you're done. This is one of those things which is an absolute red line for them. Oh, you want to talk about Jamal Khashoggi? Oh, you're it's over we are never going to have this discussion and you can forget about it and it's a problem because they have the basically one of the only OPEC nations that are able in order to immediately spin up production because we've talked about here america is a major you know uh, oil producing nation in its own right but Our infrastructure is not such that it would take six to nine months in order to make sure that we want to. The Saudis could pump more tomorrow.
2: They have complete control over the industry.
3: And they have total control over the industry. And they've even said, they're like, oh, yeah, we can do it. Well, we're not going to. They've agreed to a, quote, modest increase. And you can just see the economic effect that this is having on all Americans. Let's put this up there. I had this cut from the AAA gas price national average. I mean, the national average of gas— as we cut this, was $4.12 a gallon. That's a lot of money. Okay, it's not 450, 430 like it was uh, a couple of months ago. So that yeah, the, high, the all-time high it recorded was $4.33 a gallon, which was last month. But I mean, it's only dropped by 20 cents. That's still an enormous tax on the average American. In California, Crystal, the average price is $5.68 a gallon. I mean, the lowest prices are in the 370s, 360s in the South and in the Southwest. But here also in the DMV, I get lucky if I get $4.12 a gallon, which is the national average. I mean, that is an immense amount of money that our Americans are outlaying every week uh, to these oil companies and because right. specifically of the Saudis.
2: Yeah, although the truth truth is at this point, it has. there was a time when it had a lot to do with the Saudis yeah. um, withholding production and basically serving, you know, as Russian, the, that's what the Russians want yeah. them to do. And right. there were all these little like diplomatic slights of the White House was trying to line up a phone call with mm-hmm. MBS. They kept pushing them off. Ultimately, they cancel. And then the very next day, he's taking a call with Putin. Yes. So there's yeah. all kinds of that 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 kind of stuff that's ultimately going on here. But, you know, oil prices per barrel have dropped a lot, Mm -hmm. um, not thanks to anything that Biden or anyone else has done, but because of the new lockdowns in China, yep, you know, exactly. curbing demand significantly. Um, and as we covered here before on this show, the sad fact of the matter is that when um, oil prices by the barrel go up, gas prices skyrocket immediately. But when they go down again, it takes a long time yes. for them to come back down because all of the like um, gas station operators are trying to make what they can um, and benefit from the distance between what they're paying for uh, oil and what they can charge you at the pump. So. I just want to be clear, there's like a complex picture of why gas prices continue to be high right now. But the more important point here about the Saudis is, listen, I want to see our country have good relations around the world, period, even with regimes that I don't particularly care for. And that definitely includes the Saudi regime, which has been extraordinarily nefarious, which, you know, the war in Yemen has been a moral atrocity that we have been completely complicit in. However, uh, in the While in the micro, it has caused some pain at the pump for American consumers that I do not want to diminish. In the macro, us having a more arm's length distance from Saudi Arabia is a good thing. And, you know, it's interesting what it happened over because you had um, progressives who were kind of out on their own making the case. And some other civil libertarians who I want to give credit to. Exactly. Um, Who were kind of out on their own with regards to the Yemen war and trying to take a stand there. And then it was once uh, the Jamal Khashoggi killing happened, that really started to galvanize public opinion and bipartisan sentiment, including with mainstream Democrats, against the Saudi regime. And that really did serve as a kind of a tipping point. So it's It's revealing here that it was those comments from Jake Sullivan Mm -hmm. bringing up Khashoggi that causes MBS to totally freak out and scream at him. Um, because, even, you know, it's, look, it was horrific what they did to Khashoggi, but that's only one of many abuses that we should be concerned about yeah, They do it from, every day I from know. the Saudi yeah. government. Um, but that was the thing that really sort of turned American public opinion and elite political opinion um, and caused them to question what this relationship with Saudi was ultimately like. So I do think that that was kind of a pivot point in this relationship.
3: Yeah, and we shouldn't uh, dismiss this either. Let's put this up there uh, from Bloomberg. Rising oil prices This is just from yesterday. They are a boon to the Saudi economy. I mean, they are making bank in a way that they have not made in a long time. The IMF said its estimate for the country's economic growth is going up by three percentage points to 7.6%. That's China-level growth for a country that produces and does nothing but (laughs) pump oil. That's some pretty amazing, uh, uh, yeah, despite all of their propaganda about all their other fake business that they have, they're an oil country and they'll continue to be an oil country until the day that it runs out. And the reason it matters is because they don't have a whole lot of incentive here. The only reason that they would do so is through some sort of diplomatic, uh, diplomatic agreement with the United States in order to drop oil. And they know that they have us over a barrel. And what's worse is that they have great relationships with Jared Kushner yeah. because they are banking that a return for the Kushner and Trump regime would make it so that it would be great for them. They're yeah, like,
2: this is the real foreign interference that people should be talking 100%, about. 100%. Yeah. Ken Klippenstein's been saying that yeah. for a while, too, by the and way. which is absolutely
3: foreign interference. Same thing whenever China would do the you know, spot, they would try and raise spot prices uh, for agricultural goods in the Midwest ahead of the election because mm. they were upset about tariffs. These are the types of foreign interference with the country the media never wants to actually talk about but has very real political ramifications here in the U.S. We should all just be aware. Look, like, no matter how what you think, I don't want to be screwed with by the people who are probably more responsible Responsible for 9/11 than anybody but mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden, and. That, you know, it's disgusting that we've been kissing their ass for the last 20 years and allowing wow. all of this Saudi cash swimming around in our country. Even the yeah. Twitter deal. We talked about that with Elon going against the uh, the Kingdom Holding Company. That's I mean, right. by the way, I'm aware that the Kingdom Holding Company is not actually tied to the kingdom. But if you think that that prince isn't directly subject to the whims of MBS, given that he was literally imprisoned by MBS, then you're an idiot. And I just think that we should not allow these Saudi royal family members or rich people to throw any weight around in this country whatsoever. And this ties to, you know, my conversations around nuclear and and all of that and why exactly that's necessary. But you can just look at this and it's really gross that they are printing money hand over fist. They're screwing with us and we continue to sell them weapons and give them preferential treatment in the diplomatic world. They don't deserve it. Screw them. That's what we should
6: say.
2: That's a part of the Biden administration that's been really pathetic is even after some of these, you know, displays of contempt They still are doing what they want them to do, thinking that like, oh, well, maybe if we appease them a little bit more and give them what they want, then they'll lessen their hostile posture. This Wall Street Journal report that we started this block with admits that the administration, they aren't even bothering to ask anymore for them to lift production because they've just given up on it ultimately being a possibility. That's how, um, you know, that's how intransigent ultimately and arrogant I think the Saudi regime is at this point. Let's get to Sagar's part in this whole saga. Go ahead and throw this element up there on the screen. So, as I was just saying, these executives really deserve a lot of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And so Sagar, on Twitter provided a little bit of that scrutiny, saying, Vijaya Vijaya Gatti, is that how you say you're listening? The top censorship advocate at Twitter, who famously gaslit the world on Joe Rogan's podcast, True, and censored Mm -hmm. the Hunter Biden laptop story, is very upset about the Elon Musk takeover, and he includes in there a Politico story that says Twitter's top lawyer reassures staff and cries during (laughs) meeting about Musk takeover. This is reporting from Politico, okay? This is like, he's just... Showing the world what happened here and having some commentary about it. I can't stand
3: Vijayagade. Haven't been able to stand her uh, since 2018 when she appeared on the Joe Rogan experience with Jack Dorsey. Spent 90% of the time gaslighting all of us and Tim Pool as well about the censorship policies yeah. over there. So I found it amusing. And I'm going to talk about this in my monologue. Was it mean? Yeah, okay. I'll, but, I'll admit okay, it. Yeah, but It was mean. I,
2: I won't even defend you that. Yeah. Put this back up on the yeah. screen. This is not even that mean. I mean okay, not, I agree. But I'm just saying. By the standards like, of, of Twitter, I actually think you're being a little too hard on yourself. Put that part back up on the screen because we've got another part we've got to get here. So you say she famously gaslit the world. True. Censored the Hunter Biden laptop story. True. Is very upset. Also true. Just completely factual point by point based on the reporting from Politico. So then something very unexpected happens. I
3: did not expect this. Elon
2: Musk himself replies and says also in a pretty neutral tone. Here, I agree. Suspending the Twitter account of a major news organization for publishing a truthful story was obviously incredibly inappropriate. And I don't know who at this point really disagrees with that. Who
3: can disagree with (laughs) that? I, I couldn't believe it. But guys, what ends up happening here is the most legitimately insane thing I have ever been a part of. So Elon replies to me, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. My phone literally just uh, won't stop buzzing. People wrote up his comments, all of that. Then, in the next couple of hours, a narrative begins to develop that Elon and me are responsible for targeted harassment Mm -hmm. against this woman, Vijaya Gade, because apparently some rando accounts said she should be fired and said some racist stuff against her. Obviously, I do not condone anything racist against Vijayagade. You may not have noticed, but I'm Indian. Furthermore, <laughs> I did some investigation. I called my mom. Now, according to my mom, Vijayagade is not only are we both Indian, she is also a Telugu person, as in we are from the same region of India. Furthermore, I actually have a cousin with the last name who is similar to Vijayagade, so we may even be related. So maybe. You're just, you're just yeah. a
2: self hating Indian. That's you're right, I'm self Indian.
3: Not only are we both Indian, we are from the same region of India, and or our family's from the same region of India, and I might actually be related to the lady. Okay, okay. So let's go with, let's put that out of the way.
2: Yeah. And so yeah. so then the me- news media decides this is an angle we can pursue because right. they don't necessarily love being like overtly in favor of no, we want the censorship. Right, right, what right, if right. they have free speech? Oh my god. Because, yeah. you know, these places like to pretend that they're free speech outlets and in favor of such things. So now they're like, "Oh, we've we've got an angle." Yeah. They've got now their we've angle. They've got, you know, targeted harassment of a female executive brought on by these powerful Powerful. figures, et cetera, et cetera. So Washington Post decides to go forward with this story. Elon Musk boosts criticism of Twitter executives, prompting online attacks. And let me read to you the framing Mm -hmm. of this, which is so incredibly dystopian and gaslighty and dishonest. So they say... Elon Musk is using his powerful Twitter account to bolster right-wing users yeah. who sharply criticized two company, company executives, exposing them to the online masses who join in the attacks, exposing them to the online masses. Again, these are powerful, very powerful individuals that we're talking about here. It started with a Tuesday tweet mm-hmm. from political podcast host uh, Sagar and Jetty. He
3: always tried to do that.
2: Twitter yeah. users quickly piled on to the criticism of Gotti Including calling on Must to fire her and using racist language to describe her. Gade was born in India. India and immigrated to the U.S. as a child. One user said she would, quote, go down in history as an appalling person. (gasps) How could you say such a thing? I actually found it kind of revealing that that was the worst response that they could find here. This is so mild. (laughs) Yeah,
3: I know. People have said horrible (laughs) things about me.
2: Guess what? I don't care. You know,
3: whatever. That's what comes with this uh, business. And the people who criticized me, which prompted those, whatever. It's part of the game. I'm not going to be like, you're a racist for coming after me. So, what really pissed me off, though, Chris. So it was not just the framing of this, was inside of the article they wrote, and they've, they've since updated it, they said, Injeti did not immediately respond for a request to comment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm literally just spending my Wednesday morning, I came back from the gym, it's like 7.30 or whatever, I'm like scrolling, and I, and I said, whoa, I've never been, uh, I've, nobody's contacted me. I checked my Instagram, I checked my email, I checked my phone, nothing. So then I called our producer, James. And here's what James tells me. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. This Washington Post lady emails James, not even me, at 2.06 a.m. And she says, here... Hi there. We are quickly writing up his tweets tonight about Vijaya Gade with the peg that Musk is piling on. Some questions. Here are questions. Listen to this. Does he have any concern that mentioning a specific Twitter executive could result in attacks on that exec? What are the responsibilities here? For example, one of the commenters made racist tweets about Gade and others said she should be fired. Number two, what does he hope to accomplish by calling out (laughs) Gade and getting Elon involved? So there's a lot going on. So much. Number one, everybody in this town has my phone number, including half of the people who work at her newspaper. Yes. It's not that hard to find. By the way, please don't call me uh, randomly. (laughs) But it's really not that difficult. I was a reporter. I know a lot of the people here. She could easily have gotten it. And many of her colleagues have contacted me and have spoken to me many times in the past. Number two, Emailing somebody for comment at 2.06 a.m. Eastern time is complete BS.
2: And what time did they go live with the story? They
3: went live with the story late, like 6 a.m. Uh, uh, Eastern Just time. By the way, later. I'm awake. You could call. I was literally awake. I got up at 5 that day in order to go work out. You could have called me. I would have given you a comment. I would have been happy to do so. I'm actually pretty accessible whenever people write about breaking points. So seven hours after Elon Musk replied to me, they contact me for the story. Now let's get to the actual questions here. Vijaya Vijayagade was paid seventeen million dollars last year. She literally appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast and is the top policy executive at Twitter. She's a public figure. I'm allowed to criticize public figures. In fact, that's literally my job. Yes. And Under the guise of the First Amendment, which I prize and which I think is very important for me to be able to do the work that I do, that is well within the bounds of both accepted and legal speech. But also, I would think even within the respectability industrial complex. Yes. Going. After somebody on a substantive issue is not out of bounds who
2: is very powerful powerful. her title is twitter's is very dystopian title twitter's legal policy and trust leader so she's the head of the ministry of information right (laughs) so
3: my (laughs) criticism of her on a policy matter that she has publicly spoken about how am I responsible for what some random-ass Twitter account yes. says to her? And same yes. with Elon. He didn't say anything crazy about Vijaya no. He replied to a tweet and criticized her on a policy matter that she was directly involved in. She's the person who censored the Elon Musk story. Now, number two, in turn, is her second question. She accuses me of bringing in Elon. I've never spoken to Elon Musk in my entire life. We've had no connection. I've, he's never tweeted at me before. I've never spoken to him. I've never corresponded with him. I've never corresponded with anyone at Tesla. I think the closest connection that we would have is that we also know Joe Rogan. Right. Okay. Yes. So just so people are completely <laughs> aware, maybe he knows which who I am. Which is a
2: big, which is a large group of people, the right. people who know Joe Rogan. Yeah. I don't, I not
3: I, maybe he knows who I am. I have, literally have no idea. So, I didn't bring Elon. What was I hoping to accomplish? What did she
2: hope to accomplish what? by calling out Gade and getting Elon involved? Yeah. What, what, what does anyone hope to accomplish when I'm sending I'm making a comment on
3: a policy matter. But I think this is the perfect example. This is how they try to smear you. I make a substantive point. Some random people say something. Now, me and Elon are racists yeah. and are responsible for the harassment that this lady is experiencing. By the way, I decry the harassment, okay? And any racist harassment against her would be equally applicable to me. So obviously, yeah, that's fair. not thing. So fair. It, all of this, as you said at the top, they are just covering up for the fact that they agree with censorship. Right. And two, let me just take you a little bit behind the scenes because I found out a little bit more since uh, all of this happened. Vijaya Gade, I don't have a confirmation on this, but I'm just telling you, she has very, very close relationships with a lot of these reporters. In fact, the Washington mm. Post reporter who wrote this story was going and liking a bunch of tweets about how Vijaya Gade is like some saint you know, come back to earth and how she, you know, she's somebody who's been really helping people out. And it has been mm. na- known to me via cutouts, I'm not going to reveal my sources, that Vijaya is very, very close with the entire tech press, which is why they are going after mm. this. So was she involved in maybe creating this entire narrative? I'll let you take that uh, supposition for See, yourself. that's the
2: thing that is so yeah. dishonest here. I mean, first of all, I think it really reveals what dishonest, hacky actors they are, that yeah. they would email James yeah. at 2 a.m. Right. for comment. Right. And then make it sound like, oh, you just couldn't be bothered to respond or didn't have I'd be have happy any to respond. Yeah. I mean, that just is a little window into how these people actually right. operate. And then- yeah, this isn't a straight. She she wants to present this as just like a straight news report, mm-hmm. but clearly this is advocacy. Yeah, you're obviously I mean,
3: friends
1: with the lady.
2: Very be clearly, honest. is advocacy here? Right. And listen, the same standard could be applied. You know, turn it right back around. How could the Washington Post, you know, call yeah, you out right. and target you for harassment? And Sagar, are you okay? Yeah, I, I know. mean, you know, it's it's just. It reminds me a lot of actually what they did um, with with Bernie Sanders and like the whole Bernie bro narrative Mm -hmm. and trying to blame Bernie for any like bad thing that some random supporter of his ultimately said. It was equally ridiculous. And it's why I was really disappointed when he actually sort of gave into that narrative at one point, because now you can see the way this gets weaponized all the time and it always gets weaponized to protect really powerful people. I mean, this is someone who is so a, clearly a public figure, like not a question mark whatsoever, who is also extraordinarily wealthy and has all of the privileges and protections that comes with that class status as well, and whose influence really matters. So for you know, a private citizen or a journalist or anyone else to have an opinion on that That you expressed, I mean, yeah, it was, like, a little bit snarky, but it honestly was really, you know, totally within bounds of public discussion of issues that are very fraught and very important. To make that into some nefarious thing, I just, it's, like, you're right to be completely indignant in the way that they handled all of this. And I think we should also say, like, they were not the only ones. No, no, no. Insider also wrote it up in a really sleazy and dishonest way. They called you a right-wing activist. (laughs) Okay, I mean... Guys,
3: ask the real right-wing <laughs> activist. I can't stand it. Yeah, right, This right? exactly. yeah, it, it, is the funniest thing.
2: It's just, but, yeah. you know, it's very clearly the the language is chosen to make you sound like some mm-hmm. nefarious actor who's trying to stir up shit and you're yeah. in cahoots, you know, that's the sort of insinuation here from The Watch. You're in cahoots with yeah. Elon to target this harassment at this vulnerable person. Give me a break, it's ridiculous. No,
3: it really pissed me off because, like you said, it spawned, actually, that Washington Post story, it then spawned Business Insider and a bunch of other outlets or conservatives referring to me either as a right-wing activist or conservative YouTuber. I'm like, guys, why does we have to apply any of these like a- adjectives? Why can't it just be host of breaking points, a popular political show? I right. mean, what's wrong with that? It's a right-left show. We have an incredibly diverse audience. Ask people who actually know me, who actually listen to me. None of them would use that moniker whenever they're trying to describe me. But beyond that, it's it's not even exactly how they refer to me. It's the tactics. And like, guys, this is what I want to show you. The inside, the 2 a.m. emails, the ridiculous questions. They rely on you not knowing how the sausage is made. And it comes back to the Taylor Lorenz point I made. Listen, lady, if you like Vijaya Gade, write an op-ed about it. Be like, Sagar and Jetty is a dishonest hack. I honestly wouldn't care. I'd be like, okay, fine, whatever. I disagree with you. I would probably do something here about it. But to to do this all within a news story is just so incredibly dishonest. It just yeah. shows you why we're trying to do the work that we are here. Both right. in order to expose this, but to try and build something so
2: Diferent. apart
3: from this. Yeah. So and yeah,
2: this and it does really relate to the to Taylor Lorenz because right. this is like the tactic that she uses all the time exactly. to shield herself exactly. from criticism and the the weaponizing of these like of identity too to mm-hmm. again shield Powerful actors from scrutiny. I mean, Taylor. The thing that makes it so ridiculous with her is everyone wants to to sort of like um, infantilize her. It's like, how could you do this to this young woman? Right. First of all, she's we don't know exactly how old yeah, she she's is. Lied about her age, but times. she's not that young at this point. She's like
3: nearly forty. And second yeah. of all,
2: this is a well-paid. Prominent journalist at one of the top outlets in the entire country in a tremendous position of power. And I don't doubt that there has been ugly misdirected her way, and I do not want that for her or anyone else whatsoever. But to make yourself the, like, you're the victim in this country, like, do you know anyone who has suffered anything real in your life? Like, look around at this nation and think about all of the pain and suffering that is going on, and you're going to make it about yourself, and you're the victim in the story. That's why these things are so disturbing, because ultimately, again, it is used to make sure you cannot critique the powerful. And so this is a perfect example of how they use these tactics really cynically to try to shut down what is a legitimate debate and discussion about the policies that should govern our public square. Yeah.
3: And the last thing I'll say on this is I'm lucky, okay? I got this show. I have you guys. I have the premium subscribers. Like I my livelihood is not going to be affected by this. But let's say I was still let's say we still worked at the hill. This is a problem all right? Correct. This That's is a real problem for point. me. That's uh, a very good if point. If I still worked in uh, in a normal corporation or media company, this is a real issue in terms of the way that you're getting described and your colleagues and, hey, you know why are you being unprofessional, um, all of this. I have the liberty in order to expose all of it and just say, here's what they said to me. Here's the email. This is complete BS. I can fully express myself. So I just want to say another thank you to everybody who listens to the show, to all the people who support yeah. the show. I, I am only able to do what I am able to because I know that you're my boss and not anybody right. else because we're still working in media this is yes. a real problem but let me say yeah
2: I have no doubt that our audience is going to you right. know almost 100 percent support mm-hmm. what you know the fact that you were clearly in the right of the Washington yeah. Post is ridiculous here but this is not without a cost for us either because we're very dependent, you know, in terms of the YouTube world. Oh, yeah. We're dependent on whether they deem us to be a trustworthy news source or not right. and how the algorithm deals with our videos and how much they serve them and all of those things. So it's not without a cost and a price when the mainstream comes after you and tries to sideline you as some crank, some bully, YouTube? some troll, yeah. etc. Are we a conservative YouTube show? Ask yourself that.
3: Are we a conservative <laughs> YouTube show? That's BS, okay? And just the way, yeah, look, I mean, I don't want to bel- belabor the point, but it, it has real costs to us. Not as much because we rely on our premium subs and on our audience. Yeah. But, you know, this this really could have been a big problem for all of us. So anyway, I want to thank you all once again, uh, just for having my back. And it gives me the confidence in order to speak out against these. This
2: people. was, I mean, this was not a borderline case. Right. There was really no nuance here. That's You're it. very clearly well within the bounds <laughs> of public debate and discussion. And the Washington Post has lost their minds in a very dishonest and nasty way. The Biden administration is thinking about maybe canceling some student loan debt. Let's go ahead and put this Wall Street Journal article up on the screen. They say, Biden, seriously considering student loan forgiveness, officials say, President may be warming to take executive action to erase at least some loan debt. Some Democrats believe a move would motivate young voters in midterms. Um, Basically, what happened is he was in one of these caucus meetings and didn't detail his plans, but responded positively when lawmakers pushed him to forgive $10,000 in student debt. The people said, suggesting they would be happy with his final decision, he also indicated he's open to further extending the current pause on student loan payments, which is set to expire on August 31st. Obviously, this is a massive issue just because the uh, astronomical amounts of debt that are held by student loan debt holders, about 40 million people, 40 million people owe around $1.6 trillion in federal student debt. That makes up around 90% of student debt outstanding. So just pointing out there, this obviously whatever Biden do, would do would only apply to the debt that's held by the government. Mm-hmm. That makes up about 90% of student debt outstanding. The politics of this, let's go ahead and put this insider report up on the screen. So the reason that they are at, at long last considering this move is because Young people are not happy with the Biden administration and are extraordinarily apathetic about whether they're going to vote in the midterms. But you have a Harvard poll that found 85% of young Americans wanting Biden to take some form of action on student debt. The flip side of that is. Uh, in this Harvard poll, which is actually interesting, worth digging into in and of itself. But they found 42% of voters under 30 don't believe their votes make a real difference. And part of that is because, you know, whatever, and we're going to debate the merits of this particular proposal in a moment, but whatever you think of it, Biden did promise to do something on student loan debt, has all of the power at his disposal to do something about student loan debt, made that promise on the campaign trail very popular with young voters, and then here we are, and he still hasn't done it. So, gee, I wonder why so many young voters feel like their votes don't make a real difference. And again, to the question of, you know, how this may impact them politically, go ahead and put this up on the screen. Biden's approval with voters under 30 now drops to 41%. Now, this was one of the strongest groups that helped to elect him president. You know, he won young voters overwhelmingly. Uh, at the beginning of his presidency, his highest approval ratings ca- came among this youngest demographic. And now, as I covered last week, that has completely flipped. Mm-hmm. So actually, Biden's approval rating is best with the oldest age demographic and worst with young voters. So they're looking at the midterms saying, guys, it looks like we are completely screwed. What can we possibly do? Joe Manchin continues to jerk us around and build back better, and that seems like as hopeless as it ever has. So this is something in our power. Geez, maybe we should actually do something at this point. Now, I do think the politics here are a little bit more complicated. Um, for one thing, young voters, not particularly reliable midterm voters are, yes. or otherwise, but particularly in the midterms. I do think that there is, um, you know, the the backlash or the argument against this is basically like, well, what about people who aren't college, you know, college yeah, student loan ho- holders? Right. And the other uh, question, which uh, our friend Philip asked Jensaki, is about, okay, well, what about people who, you know, worked hard and their parents mm-hmm. scrimped and saved and they actually paid off their student loan debt? Aren't they kind of getting a Deal. Let's take a listen to that question.
5: Follow-up on the student loan. Yeah. Um,
3: you said that the president is looking at a, a range of options with regards to canceling some student debt. But is the president looking at any options for those students and parents who saved and sacrificed so that they wouldn't have to take out such massive loans? Is he looking at including them in relief retroactively? How would they be made whole if there was some sort of canceling of debt? You mean
1: for people who have paid off all of their student loans?
7: Who made sacrifices so that they wouldn't have to take out some of those loans?
1: It's a good question. What I can tell you at this point is that there's legislation he'd be happy to sign for individuals who have $10,000 in existing student debt. Um, If Congress wanted to send that to him, he'd be happy to sign. And he's looking at executive actions and authorities. But I don't have anything to preview on that front.
2: So I think those two things are potentially politically potent, both the question— it's a fair question. It's it's definitely a fair question. I will point out um, on the the substance, and I want to get your thought on the politics, and then we can talk more about, like, you know, who actually would benefit and some of the the details behind this. But— you already do have subsidies for people who are higher wealth and able to save in advance for their kids' college. So you have Coverdell and 529 education savings accounts so that you can have tuition functioning as a a tax advantage intergenerational transfer. So you actually do already have subsidies in place for those parents that Phil is talking about there who are able to save in Mm -hmm. advance for their, their kids' education. So in in fact, you know, the system is kind of unfair right now towards those who don't have the ability to save in advance and have to take out these massive student loans. But on the politics of it, I think it is overwhelmingly uh, popular with young voters who disproportionately are the ones who are burdened by the student loan debt, who feel their futures are constrained by the amount of debt that they oftentimes graduate college with, who were sold this bill of goods of like, you know, the answer to everything is to get a college education. I think that's particularly true of um, black Americans who were told, basically like, this is the way to build wealth. This is the way to close the racial wealth gap. And ultimately, you know, it didn't end up being the the certain ticket that they thought it would be. And because the costs are so outrageous, they've been saddled with something for life. So for young voters, do I think it will help? Maybe, marginally at this point. But I do think the overall politics are a little more fraught than maybe people would want to. People with my ideological view would want to. I'm
3: glad you, you could say that. I mean, because I do think that this is an important point. More than half of young people did not go to college. And so, look, I believe, ultimately, I think the people who got saddled with student debt got sold a bill of goods. But you know who I blame the Bill of Goods for? The university system. So bailing out the university system, who continues to bilk these kids, not have any you know, actual stake in how they're doing, and also not change university financing, let's be honest too. Where is the major bloat coming in university budgets that's increasing tuition? Diversity and inclusion initiatives. So we should all bail out the diversity departments of Yale, Harvard, Texas Is that Texas true, but I just don't genuinely don't no, know that. that is... I
2: know administration overall. So, so I don't know that I have seen seen any numbers that back up that the overwhelming amount of the bloat is let's just
3: say it's areas. all administration you can ask yourself where most administrative costs new cost is being outlayed to and i say as both my parents but work in there's
2: been escalation in administration yeah. for many 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 years oh absolutely but i'm I, talking in
3: the last 10 years right. which is also when the highest spike has also been so but
2: i think i think the most valid critique um, and the most good faith critique here is the idea of like okay but what what then yeah. Right. You do this you point. do this one-time thing. Now, for me personally, because I do think that this is such an outrageous situation, and a relatively new one too. I mean, it's easy for us to forget mm-hmm. because we've always come of age during a time when college tuition is fucking insane. Um, but this is actually a really new phenomenon of it being so insanely expensive that no one could hope to be very few people could hope to be able to actually afford it up front. And since it is such a burden, um that really does weigh down younger generations and we've talked here about how you know this sets everybody back from being able to own a home from being able to start a family student loan debt really puts this weight on top of both millennials and Gen Z, that it is worth uh, some sort of solution, even if it is you know, not 100 percent of what you would ultimately want. So yeah. what I would say is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is the tool that is at their disposal. This would provide tremendous relief for you know, millions and millions of people. And so I do think it's worth pursuing, even as I acknowledge it's nowhere near a complete solution yeah. without those other reforms that you're talking
3: about. My, my, my point would be, first of all, I think it would be a political disaster, because I think a lot of people will Feel slighted. But two, is it look, and I should also be clear, I actually believe in very poor student loan forgiveness. However, it has to be paired with a complete change in the financing system of the universities. Number two, we can never let this happen again. I was looking at some of the data. Even if you wipe out $1.9 trillion in debt, the debt load in about five to 10 years would also be $1.9 trillion. So what? We're going to wipe it out again. Yeah, do 10? it again. No, but, but we mean, can't do that but, because we're just bailing a, out the
2: university system. So, but that's just an argument yeah. for, you know, okay, you do this and then you have. To actually reform, you have to have, you know, I personally think we should have free public college, um, public university at this point, or at least very affordable. So that's just an argument for this isn't the end all be all. This is just the beginning. But I think it's I think, again, to say, well, it's not perfect and it doesn't actually solve the whole problem. So let's just forget about it. Well, that's to de- that denies a lot of people relief right now. That would be very beneficial to them. Um, and so we have some stats that, you know, kind of make points in both directions. Let's yeah. go ahead and put the next piece up on the screen there from Brookings. This is interesting because a lot of the help would go to people who are relatively high income who went to uh, graduate school, yep. if Lawyers you did, and doctors. you know, right. and this is if you did complete debt cancellation. So what Biden's talking about at most is $10,000, even that's uncertain. And they've also floated like, you know, it may be income based. Mm-hmm. So some of this debate may be a little bit moot. But you know, they point out that in this piece, which I actually hadn't really thought about that, in fact, the way to think about it is, okay, well, how much of this, this debt how much is this debt as a percentage of your income? Because obviously, if you're someone who's earning a relatively low income, you're gonna experience that $10,000 in debt as a much heavier burden than someone who's at the high end of the income threshold. And um, the person who, who wrote this analysis made the case of like, You know, sales tax is widely considered a regressive tax because it takes up more of your income if you are a low-income person. Even though wealthy people, because they spend more money, they pay pay more more of the tax. tax, So it really is important to think about it in relation to a percent of income. And then also we'll get to in a moment, it also is very different. The picture is very different when you're thinking about income versus when you're thinking about total wealth. And one thing we've talked here a lot about recently is how much the sort of asset and wealth economy is even more important indicator at this point than thinking about just what your income is. Because you could have a relatively low income, but if you've got, you know, if you own a home, for example, then you're in a much better position. So people who have high levels of student loan debt. That really puts a huge burden on them in terms of being able to buy a home or have that asset creation that puts them into middle class life. So that's why I think even as it's not, you know, 100 percent or perfect solution or all that I would see, uh, all that I would want to see having at least some student loan debt relief will really be significant for a generation that has just gotten screwed over again and again and again their entire lives. Let's
3: put the next one up there on the screen because this is also important. Uh, So take a look actually at that pie chart because the largest amount of the benefit, only 60% of households, bottom 60%, receive only 34% of the benefit because of the outstanding load of the amount of debt. And people cannot conceive of just how much debt these lawyers and these doctors are holding. And once again, I just am completely against the idea of bailing out these low rate law schools, which are charging 60 to 100 grand, really criminalizing a lot of these students and setting them up for lifelong are amounts of Are you opposed
2: debt. though even to the more lo- like $10,000 or if it's income It depends
3: because once again, even on the 10,000, you know, here's another point, which is part of the reason why the student debt is so high amongst the bottom quintile, because the bottom quintile is also disproportionately more likely not to have gone to college or not graduated from college. So the data does show us that if you actually graduate, you're mostly on track in order to pay off your debt. If you went to a public university. However, the people who get most screwed, who take out loans, and then they drop out. So actually, those people, I'm the most concerned about, and I'd be most in favor of wiping out their debt, because they have none of the benefit, all of the saddle. So that's really tough. Like I said, and I think about this a little bit like Wall Street. Look, there was a decent case to bail out Wall Street, right? Like, hey, we got to bail out Wall Street, people need to make payroll, we need a financial system, all of that. But Did we deal with the underlying problem? No. We actually have probably more of a criminal Wall Street system than we do today than before because we didn't solve the incentives. Regular
2: borrowers are not equivalent to Wall Street ghouls who deserve to go to prison. Right,
3: but but the whole point was (laughs) at the time is how are people going to make payroll? Normal-ass people need to get their paychecks, people, all this. That's why we did it, uh, ultimately, in the first place. There was a case, a decent case at the time, that real people's lives were going to be affected by a complete bank collapse, which was correct, but- and I think that the correct case at the time, which I know you agree with, is we had to change the underlying system, which we did not yeah, do. But so we I, can't I, just, keep I don't doing think it's this. a good
2: analogy because you're yeah. talking about bailing out people who profoundly did not deserve it. This is talking about people who profoundly do deserve it, who were really like sold a bill of goods, you know, walked down this rosy path of just take on the debt go to college this is a way to build wealth and then we're stuck with a bill that is just completely insane and which by the way if we're just being real many of them will never pay i mean that's part of it too is like like social security the amount of debt that um has been loaded on top of these generations they're it's just going to be with them hanging like a rock around their neck for their entire lives so um so yeah it's you know I would like to see us reform our system so that we have free public college. I would like to have debt completely wiped out. But I would support even a limited... Um, forgiveness so that people can start to get ahead again. Because, you know, the real path to the American dream at this point is to be able to own a home. And if you've got this debt burden on top of you for your entire life, it makes it so difficult for you to be able to ever become part of the asset ownership class, which is why we see millennials and Gen Z so consistently screwed we have some. Um, this is. Let's put Matt Brunig's, uh analysis up on the screen here because this is interesting as well. Um, he's got just some numbers about what is the current student debt situation. You could see there just how much money is owed, somewhere between 1.1 trillion and 1.65 trillion. Let's go ahead and put the next piece up on the screen. The next chart that we have here. So this makes the case you're making, Sagar, of yep. if you look at the share of student debt owed by each income quintile, it actually goes up. As you become wealthier. Mm -hmm. But he points out another way of thinking about it is if you look at the uh, share of student debt by uh, wealth rather than income, go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen, the dynamic actually flips. And that's partly because if you are weighed down by student debt, then, uh, you know, undoubtedly you're going to have less wealth overall because that student debt is putting a tremendous burden on you and bringing your wealth down to really low levels. So you have here the least wealthy fifth quintile has 55% of the share of student debt. So I think, you know, that's a really important distinction to make too, is it's one thing to think about income flows in, but not everybody who is, you know, earning the same level of income is in the same boat in terms of their overall wealth and ability to own assets. Yeah,
3: and let's put the next one up here just to be entirely clear about what the Biden people are actually considering. So a source familiar tells NBC that they are thinking no decision is made and that any loan cancellation would be linked to income. So according to the people I've spoken to, a 10K, up to 10K capped by income is the most likely scenario. Look, I mean, I guess I would be okay with it, but I actually think it would be dramatically unpopular. And one of the reasons why I'm against this type of ad hoc type policy is we have to have everybody have some buy-in here. So I would be much more in favor of a $10,000 type wipeout as long as we restructure the incentive systems for all younger Americans. So think about how many working class class young people over the last couple of years have been saddled down by credit card Mm -hmm. debt and others. If you even look at the polling data on why people aren't getting married or having children, the number one reason is financing. So again, in a country where 55% of people don't even go to college, don't even try, they also have an immense amount of debt. I would be much more in favor Favor of, okay, let's say 10K, cap it by income, those people, all is here. Frame it as like a new start, a new deal, some sort of thing yeah. for those folks. Because universal systems like Social Security and Medicare, where everybody in a generation actually universally benefits from something, is just much more preferable to me. Because right now, this is class warfare. I mean, let's be honest. Like, these people are disproportionately Democrats, so it's a bailout also of their own voters. And also, it's just, I don't think it's right to have the educated class get a bailout when
2: young working class folks who who actually pay taxes are getting nothing from it, this it all depends yeah. on what problem you're trying to solve yeah. right if the problem you're trying to solve is just like people have been screwed overall and so they should get help overall yeah. like which ob- i believe honestly yeah, yeah. like i'm totally good yeah. with sending out a ten thousand dollar check to everybody in the country yeah. and having it right. happen on a routine basis and you know redistribution so that we have uh you know massive transfer wealth to make the country less unequal i am a hundred percent on board with that i don't hear that uh, particular argument coming from many conservatives. No, uh, mostly you know. they just want to argue against any help for anybody. And so, you know, that if if the problem you're trying to solve is people are poor and they need help, overall in general they've been screwed. Okay, that's one problem that requires a universal solution. If the problem you're trying to solve is people have been screwed over specifically by the college education system and the massive tuition bills, then this makes more sense as a solution. And by the way, you know, the younger you go on the, on the um, demographic scale, the more likely you are to have gone to college. So, like, Gen Z... Um, uh, overwhelming majority Mm -hmm. do some college. They may not graduate with a four-year college degree, which gets to your point of like, those are the people who really get screwed. Um, But you know, to to paint this as like, oh, it's just for the educated class. I don't think that's fair because you have so many young people now who do go to college because they've been sold. This is the only way you can even have a chance at succeeding in American society. So listen, to your point, what we're likely looking at here is going to be probably very limited if it happens ultimately at all um and i think that will limit some of the republican attacks on it as well because if it is constrained by income that makes it much harder to paint it as just like a wealthy class bailout but um you know i think it would be uh, at least some help to a lot of people in generations that have been pretty much screwed.
3: Yeah. we'll see how it works out we
2: will all see right. what happens join us now is the executive editor at the american prospect the one and only david Dayen. great to see you david Good to be here. Um, First of all, I have to just say that I cannot say enough what great work you guys do over the American Prospect. We really lean on it in the show. You guys do in-depth analysis that nobody seems to, you know, dig into the numbers the way that you guys do. So I just want to applaud you for the work that you're doing, first and foremost. But second of all, we'll get to the news here. Um, Unexpectedly, this morning, we have a new report that says that the U.S. economy, the GDP, shrank at a 1.4 percent annual rate in the first quarter. That is according to the Commerce Department. That is its first contraction since early in the pandemic. Um, Just the news just came out. So I know you're just sorting through it as we are. But what do you make of these numbers?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think the expectation was for pretty slow growth for something around 1%. Uh, So this is a surprise to the downside. Um, I I think there are a couple factors. Number one, uh, the first quarter we had Omicron. Uh, which really, at, at the beginning of the year, was, was a significant uh, uh, you know, uh, lead weight on the economy. Uh, and then for the last month, you had the war in Ukraine and what that did to, to gas prices. Mm. And uh, I, I think overall you're seeing the effects of inflation on consumer spending. Um, but also, uh, you know, my understanding is that a lot of this has to do with uh, inventory reductions. Can you explain Which, that? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a weird thing about GDP where if if you end up having a lot of buildup of inventory, that kind of counts as as part of your gross domestic product because it's uh-huh. sitting there in a warehouse. Um, and if you have less, then it it counts less. So sometimes GDP is a little noisy as as that goes. Um, and this is also the first advance estimate, and we'll 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 get a more fine grained understanding of it, and it it could change from there, but. Um, yeah, sometimes you get these weird swings because of inventory.
3: So the other one here is about <clears throat> exports, uh, David, which also you know, links back to what we were going to be talking about with you. I mean, so why are our exports contracting and our trade deficit ballooning? Because that also seems to be a significant part of the reduction here in GDP.
7: Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Uh, obviously, as demand has increased for uh, goods, just basic goods, necessities and, 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 uh, and durable goods like you know, furniture, or washing machines or whatever, um, it, you almost can see it like, okay, we don't make any of that stuff. So if the demand increases, the trade deficit is going to increase. People are going to eat the same amount of food. Agriculture is, is largely our biggest export. Um, So unless people are consuming massive amounts of food, that's Mm going to stay pretty, pretty even. But if people are consuming more uh, durable items, uh, just more, more stuff, Uh, that's going to come in from overseas. So uh, that's one way to think about it. it. So
2: David, you had a great piece kind of evaluating where we are in terms of the supply chain crisis, where we are in terms of, you know, is inflation just continuing to go up and up and up? Are there any signs of that abating in any sectors? Let's go ahead and put this tear sheet up on the screen. It says supply chains are easing. Or they're not. (laughs) Our system is so unstable that we could be seeing endless waves of supply dysfunction with dangerous impacts on the economy. You point to the fact that you've got um, variables pointing in sort of every direction that enable you to to look at this a number of different ways. And you also talk about something called the bullwhip effect, which is what could cause us sort of careening from one problem to another problem back and forth. Can you just break some of that down for us?
7: Yeah, I mean the bullwhip effect is this sort of standard uh, understanding of supply chains, um, where it it takes time from when you order something, if you're a retailer, to it actually getting to you, and and conditions could change in that time period, and that's the bullwhip. It's the time for the the, the whip to crack and then you know move back uh, and 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 straighten out again. So. Uh, for example, um, uh, a lot of companies fearing that uh, they're not going to be able to get all of their supply, but they might be able to get some of it, they over-ordered or double-ordered uh, in in you know the past six months, hoping that they'd get something that they'd have to be able to sell. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, by the time they actually start getting that stuff, then... Uh, the demand has shrunk because of inflation. And there's, there's now, you've gone from shortage to glut. And there was a, a, a sense, especially uh, in the beginning of April, I mean, the, the, the GDP number comes out now, and, and we're a month into uh, beyond where the GDP is, is measuring. So uh, April in particular, um, you started to see this softening in uh, freight, uh, particularly trucking, Uh, Where there just weren't as many orders being asked for to to you know move goods and 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 things like that, and Mm -hmm. you're seeing what what could be what has been described by by some experts as a a recession in in trucking, Um, and that's because of lower consumer spending, right? Uh, But. The, the goods are already on the way by the time we get the lower consumer spending. Right. And so you could end up with this glut from these retailers that have a bunch of inventory they can't sell. Now, that's like sort of, you know, happening on the, on, you know, it's, it, it's kind of happening in real time. But the other part of this that cuts against that whole concept is the fact that Shanghai has been locked down for three weeks and now we're seeing Beijing potentially uh, going into lockdown, Shanghai is more important as manufacturing goes because it's right. it's more of a hub. Uh, you could see, you know, you have you have factories that have been shut down for a month, and uh, for for basic items for things that people just ordinarily consume, that's going to create shortages, and it could create shortages of component parts for manufacturing in other parts of the world, and so the bullwhip is going to whip back. Right. I mean, you Mm -hmm. you have this shortage. You went to glut, and now you might go back to shortage. Mm. Um, And it's just a a, an indicator of the essential instability of the way that our commerce and logistic systems work right now.
2: Well, that's the point. Is this is none of this has to be built that way. It's just that you know this micro thin like ability to have a slightly higher profit margin trumped any sort of focus on resiliency that would keep us from careening from crisis to crisis to crisis and having such fragility built in which is really what's been exposed over the past couple of years david i'm also wondering um are we seeing impacts from the federal reserve Hiking interest rates and indicating they're going to do that at, you know, at least the same pace, potentially an even more accelerated pace and uh, also indicating that they're planning to sell you know, get unload assets from their balance sheet at, mm. uh, at, at a pretty good clip as well. Are we seeing an impact from that policy play out here, too?
7: I think not direct effects yet, because they've they've only raised a quarter point at this point. There's an expectation of a half point or maybe even a 0.75 point uh, rise in May. But expectations are trending in that direction. And and that particularly comes through the channel of mortgages. Um, Mm. Mortgage rates are over 5%, and so it, it costs a lot more to buy a home. And we're starting to see that play out in some softening of, of housing markets. Um, but uh, to get back to your point, I think there, there's one very key thing that you can say about the Federal Reserve's intention to increase these interest rates to break the back of inflation. Uh, and, and, and that's to, to ask the question, what are increased interest rates? How are they going to end the lockdown in Shanghai? How are they going to stop the 500 ships that are currently off the coast of Shanghai Harbor? Mm. Uh, uh, how are they going to uh, shrink that number? Uh, they're not. I mean, we have a supply problem and the, the Fed is targeting demand, essentially, is the, is the issue to me. And uh, I, I think what we've seen uh, is, is not only uh, the, the chaos that can arise from you know, a, a pandemic, but the fact that we're in, we're in kind of a, a world where there are these threats to supply shocks at every turn. I mean, the war in, in Ukraine has been a much bigger spur, uh, particularly on food prices, uh, wheat being a very uh, a major commodity export out of Ukraine. Uh, we've seen that be a, a, a much bigger deal, uh, and of course, oil. Um, uh, than uh, than what we saw, you know, in in the two years leading up to the pandemic, uh, climate issues have been uh, uh, periodically problems for supply. The last year in China, the Yangtze River flooding led to a lot of production delays. Uh, a heat wave led, because of the way in which China's uh, uh, energy sector goes, mm-hmm. led to shutdowns at factories of electricity for several wow. weeks. And hmm. that led to shutdowns. We've seen like freak fires. There was a fire uh, in Japan that, that uh, reduced a lot of semiconductor capacity. Hmm. And then there was a fire early this year in Berlin at the factory that makes the machines that make semiconductors. Oh, Jesus. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> there uh, it, we don't, I mean, we've been able to make the, the, the very long intermediated supply chains work. Uh, uh, for I mean, work to the extent, not really for workers, but at least for cheap prices, for, for a long time. But I feel like the, the threats to this are rising. The hidden risks that this, this kind of system draws out have risen over the last several years, whether it's through more political unrest, climate uh, and extreme weather events, uh, and now a pandemic. And uh, I I think we, I think it it demands a rethink of this system.
2: I think that we are all living through that in real time. David, thank you so much for breaking it down. Great to see you.
7: Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Our
2: Mm -hmm. pleasure.
3: Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'll just reiterate it one more time. Look. I mean, you know, when the Washington Post and them were coming after me and by extension, you, by demeaning us. <laughs> Definitely. And yeah. you know, going, uh, denigrating ourselves. I would show.
2: associate myself yeah. with such a villainous a character. Villainous as yourself. character.
3: <laughs> all I could think about was thank God that we have you guys, our audience, our supporters, and the premium subs. By building the business the way that we did, it makes it so that we can actually stand up to them. So thank you all so much for your support uh, at this time. It really does mean more than you can ever know. We really appreciate it. And, you know, we're look, for your hard earned money, we are using it as best as we possibly can. We've got yeah. all these new partnerships. We've got Jordan Sheridan, who's on the ground. We're just talking to him. He's got a new uh, place he's going to be visiting, traveling for us. Got an exclusive footage. We're going to have a highlight reel of all of his interviews. It's going to drop over the weekend. Marshall's been doing great interviews. Kyle's clips have been doing great as well. We've got uh, Maximilian Alvarez. Matt Stoller's coming into the studio, right, whenever we're done today to film something new for all of you. James Lee's video uh, is fantastic. So yeah, all of it is just geared towards... How can we give you the best possible value for your money? Now we've got the newsletter going as well, a written description of everything we talk about in the show. So we're just going to keep on building here, guys. Thank you all so much.
2: Yeah, we yeah. have never, I think, been more grateful for you all yeah, because true. it does provide you peace. Like the Washington Post thing is a pain in the ass and it's yes, not cost free because right. the more that we get pushed down of like mainstream respectability, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that determines our treatment with the algorithm, all those sorts of things. But it really does give you peace of mind that, you know, yeah, we're going to be fine. And we know you guys are going to back us up and back up. So we have never been more grateful. We love you guys. We got a lot of great content to post for you this weekend. So make sure you watch out for that. And we'll see you back for a full show
0: on Monday.
5: June 30th, 2024.